0: We think we've heard of that before, stranger stories every day, wonder what tomorrow's gonna bring. So listen friends, we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find, might be true, and that's the weirdest thing. Hello. Hello.
1: So uh welcome back everybody to the weirdest thing podcast um i'm gonna do the introductions right up top this time because we always forget so
0: yeah we're we've been getting (laughs) real bad about talking for like a half hour and then it's like oh hey oh by the way let's pause and i'm gonna let you introduce us before okay (laughs) i am
1: scotty milder filmmaker horror author here in albuquerque
0: Yep. And I am Amelia Amporo. I am also, I was about to say I am also a, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> um, there's not an also in there with you and me. Um, I am a theater maker <laughs> and actor here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I guess that's the also, the also is that I'm also in also Albuquerque, Also in New Albuquerque, yeah. Ay ay, ay. We're off to a great start. <laughs> I
1: mean, yeah, this is uh, the weirdest thing. This is our podcast about weird shit. Um, yep. So this is gonna be a weird episode because like you have a subject that you're talking about and I was like oh mm-hmm. I have a weird one that kind of goes along with it. And then as I was doing the research I was like this doesn't go with hers at all. I so, think that's okay. <laughs> completely that's separate. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay.
0: I think that's fine.
1: I'll talk about why I thought it would go with yours and then okay. why I was, I think, completely wrong. But.
0: but I would say we had, I mean, yes, there's been a theme through many of our episodes, but we had the Gobekliatepe episode that yeah. was paired with the Gardner Museum heist. So. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So we're fine.
0: We're fine. Yeah. We're fine. Also, everybody, welcome. Just welcome. calm
1: down, everybody. We're fine. Okay.
0: <laughs> i'm trying to welcome people and scotty's scolding people so yeah. already we're 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 I'll right on track
1: great start.
0: <laughs> i was going to say welcome to our our new subscribers we had a big jump in subscribers in the last little chunk
1: yeah yeah i'm not sure what happened but people seem to have enjoyed the last couple episodes I, i've yeah. also gotten a fair amount of people like messaging me saying they enjoyed the last couple so that's cool
2: yeah yeah i think people
1: i think people really enjoyed me
0: talking about my own personal weird brain last week (laughs) i think here's the thing i think people really like listening to me talk about myself honestly yeah so that's what i'm gonna do from
1: now on (laughs) gonna be like this is what i did today guys
0: scotty and i will put topics on little slips of paper and we will put them into a bowl And then we will draw topics from the bowls and only relay our personal experience with said topics.
1: My personal experience with pants. I don't (laughs) like them.
0: Okay. Scotty's taking an (laughs) anti-pants stance. (laughs)
1: Anti-pants. On that note, let's uh, – oh, before we get going, I think we should, though, talk about – I know we don't want to talk, like, much about it because we don't want to spoil anything. But we should talk about uh, that damn play movie – thing we saw this weekend that you don't know
0: Oh my god. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay, it is I feel like putting any kind of label on it dilutes it. So right. it is a thing. <laughs> it is a thing. It <laughs> is a thing. Uh, that exists. And it's that exists and it's called In and of Itself. It is a one man thing. It's on Hulu and It is impossible to talk about without giving things away about it. And the best way to go into it is with a clean slate. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Scotty and I both watched it separately over the weekend uh, and- had our minds sort of equally blown by the thing so
1: yeah well and and i think blown in kind of slightly different ways though which was cool Mm, like i think mm -hmm. the things that blew my mind were slightly different than the things that blew your mind but yeah you Mm -hmm. had told me about it you had you texted me and another friend and you were like you have Mm -hmm. to watch this and i was kind of like okay i mean whatever sounds like a thing Maybe I'll watch it. Maybe I won't. We'll see. Yeah, and I and think that's finally kind of I watched why I it Don't want like, to talk about it too yeah. much. <laughs> well, yeah, and I did what you suggested. You were like, you were like, don't read anything about it. Don't watch the trailer. Just fucking watch it. Just watch it. So I was like, ugh, okay, fine, I'll watch this. Thing. Yeah, I was, I was yeah. actually not that annoyed, but I was like, not sure what to expect.
0: <laughs> how, how, I have never led you astray, have I ever? Have I, I ever suggested so. <laughs> anything to you that you've been like, I did not like that i've just scooped my chair back so just know that if there's a if there's a sound here it's just me scooting my chair back hold on there was virtually no sound
1: (laughs) there was no sound but in case you guys thought it wasn't it wasn't a fart
0: Um,
1: (laughs) yeah no you've never led me astray but i was like you said it was a theater thing i think you might have said it was a one one person thing and i was kind of like because i'm one of those people where it's like i don't think a lot of like theater performances quote unquote Mm -hmm. translate that well to film Mm -hmm. so it's kind of like okay it'll be like watching like something on pbs or something you know and it'll be fine like (laughs) and then i'll be like yay that was cool or whatever and then i watched it and was like my head was blown the way yours was
0: Yeah. Yeah. It is. um, When we get done recording, I'm going to tell you about a piece of it that I found out there's a name for the, uh, an element of it that I was really like attached to that really Mm. like pinged for me. And so I'll tell you that. It was super cool to find out that there's an actual term for that, and now I can actually like oh, cool. begin to incorporate that into my uh, sort of artistic vocabulary. But nice. yes, go check it out and allow yourself to be taken in.
1: And really, stay away from like reviews, like good reviews, bad reviews. Don't yeah, watch don't the trailer. Do, really, just go in cold. Go in cold. I'm so glad I did it that way, and it really, like, I mean, it, it, like that day i think that was saturday like that day fucked me up because watch that and then i was like okay i'm gonna decompress with this movie called beyond the black rainbow which is mm-hmm. the craziest goddamn thing i've ever seen if anyone if any of you guys have seen the movie mandy it's by a guy named panos cosmatos it's a crazy cage rage uh nick cage movie from oh, I was two, three years what? ago.
0: What the fuck does that mean? <laughs> like okay.
1: crazy, crazy just over-the-top horror movie. Um, well, beyond that beyond my the Black... chair.
0: If you pick that up, that was my chair.
1: That was a chair. It was not a fart. Okay. It was not a fart. <laughs> <laughs> nope. <laughs> uh, written and directed by a Canadian filmmaker a guy named Panos Cosmatos. And uh, uh, Beyond the Black Rainbow is his first film, which I'd been wanting to watch because i have been listening to the soundtrack while I write a lot. So I finally was like, okay, well, I watched this crazy thing Amelia told me to watch. So now I'm going to watch this other crazy thing, and like I was just, I like I was useless on Saturday. Like between the two things, just my head was mush. Yeah. At the end of the day. Yeah. Um, I would say, um, in and of itself, I think everybody can get something out of that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, Beyond the Black Rainbow, that's for a very particular type of audience. <laughs> I think you're you're 80 yeah, like I, you reason. sent me
0: the trailer and i was like hard pass on yeah, that like yeah. i can already tell that's just not going to be something i'm going to be like i don't like it
1: <laughs> yeah i loved it but yeah just that is when i would say do watch the trailer and decide if it's for you
0: <laughs> okay okay Man, and there's a whole bunch of, I saw, I just saw the thing that you had posted too about Marilyn Manson, which I think I heard about Evan Rachel Wood coming out and being like, Mm -hmm. Hey, like I, I was in a horribly abusive relationship with Marilyn Manson, but I saw that started looking into seeing all the other people that that had come out. So that's, Mm -hmm. that's terrible. Um, and what was the other thing I saw that you posted that I was like, Oh, Oh, it was the guy's review from a promising young woman.
1: Oh Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah which i still have not seen that movie yet but i have oof that review just yeah <laughs> eh. yeah, yeah. I, I i've been i've been really wanting to watch it. i just haven't sat down to watch it yet and it seems like from watching online response like social media responses to that film versus some of the reviews it seems pr- like the reactions are disappointingly gendered like i see a lot of women just like oh my god this movie is incredible and then lots of dudes just like finding reasons to piss on it now that's not universal obviously but i have seen enough of that to be like hmm this this movie may be uh cutting a little close to the bone for some of these (laughs) fellows.
0: so yeah right and i do want to say real
1: quick since you brought it up on the marilyn manson thing oh okay um so i i was kind of aware of the evan rachel wood accusations but i gotta be Mm -hmm. honest i hadn't looked that deeply into them i was a marilyn manson fan back in the Mm day back in high school you know Mm -hmm. when i was like getting into metal getting into like you know transgressive art i was super into clive barker things like that like marilyn manson just slit right into that for me but then within like a couple albums i was like okay he's kind of got his shtick it's getting kind of boring and i really have not paid attention to him for 20 years
2: Mm -hmm.
1: but after reading, reading like more deeply uh evan rachel woods accusations and then these other women's accusations i just gotta say i'm just gonna say it right now fuck that guy seriously fuck that guy
0: it's rough it is really rough and i mean i think what is it that i'm trying to say here I, we were talking about, who are we talking about with the, the woodpecker dolls? Oh,
1: uh, David Lynch.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <And then> he <laughs> was like, I, like none of them are in my life anymore. And talking about the sort of like performative oddballness versus, you know, whether that.
1: Whether it's real
0: Right, whether it's just somebody who very much just sees and experiences the world different than you know most people do, Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. I okay. Let me also be very clear here that I am not trying to be like, well, you know, like let's try and take a look at like where where Marilyn Manson is coming from. That's not what I'm trying to do. But Mm -hmm. I just I'm seeing. I think about this like dark persona that he created, and I think about you know the many examples that we've scene that have come out that you and I have talked about about people who are into sort of I don't know if alternative is the right word, mm-hmm. um, but like alternative relationship dynamics, alternative like sexual practices right. and that kind of stuff. And how these things get that can be very healthy and liberating and all of these things and how they can be twisted into something very dark. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I I don't I don't know what exactly what the point is with me bringing that up, but it's just something that's been on my mind a little bit.
1: Well, like so, you know the thing the thing about the Marilyn Manson mm-hmm. persona versus these accusations is I actually feel like what's going on there is he he invented this persona, this dark, satanic, uber sexual, confrontational persona, mm-hmm. um, and it's almost as if like he used that as an excuse to justify some pretty standard issue predatory behavior. Yes, like I, I stuff, think
0: that's the I think that's the connection I'm trying to make.
1: Yeah, like like there's nothing in the accusations that you read from these women which like I find all of the accusations entirely credible. Mm-hmm. Um, and i always did like even like i said i hadn't looked that deeply into evan rachel woods accusations right. but i always well and there's definitely of,
0: they all it's like there's a pattern of behavior right that, like it's, their
1: stories are shockingly similar it's like the weinstein stuff you know mm-hmm. but nothing in those accusations has like, made me think like oh this is because he is this dark brooding artist who just can't contain himself or whatever like image he wants to create it's mm-hmm. like this is like Shitty fucking male frat boy abuse. You know, well, it's funny, like,
0: it's funny that you say that when paired with the other big male celebrity bomb that has dropped is the stuff with Army Hammer. Right. And, and how, yeah, yeah, and that's, yeah. and I mean, that's interesting in and of itself because people come out and, you know, these women have come out and been like Marilyn Manson did this to me and I want to be, I want to, I'm going to say what I'm going to say and then I'll qualify it after I'm going to say okay. it because I think it could be a little tricky, but I think you can see, I think it's very easy to see how somebody like Marilyn Manson is has that kind of behavior in in his relationships
1: it's sort of compared to his persona
0: right built into his persona compared to the shock and sort of like incredulity that people had in hearing that Army Hammer was talking about, like wanting to eat his girlfriend's and stuff.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, they're both like, if you took examples from both men and made them anonymous, you know, we're like, here's this one guy right. who wanted to do this, and here's this other guy who wanted to do this. They both equally, they'd be as e- equally horrifying. Right. Um, I mean, but it's interesting to see how the news has been received coming from yeah. tall, blonde, good-looking Army Hammer versus right. where everybody's like, human, like well, of course, human Marilyn Kim Manson
1: is Army Hammer. Yeah. Yeah. Versus Marilyn Manson, right? Yeah. And and actually, the Army Hammer stuff, just from what I've read, is actually, I would say, like, weirder.
0: It's, I mean, okay.
1: I mean, once you introduce (laughs) cannibalism, that just adds a whole other level.
0: Well, but this is something that's really, like, I think worth exploring. Like, I'll do it on my own if nobody wants to join me in it. But (laughs) but this, like... It's hard, right? Because the realm of sexual fantasies, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: it's hard to try to like censor that. Right. You know what I'm saying? And it's like, there, like, sometimes you just like some, like, sometimes there's just stuff that you're like, I don't, I don't know. And I don't know why I like it. And it's messed up. And if it lives solely in the realm of fantasy, Mm -hmm. okay, then it like, is it is it okay or do like is there right. an element of like hey that's actually indicative of another larger issue? Well,
1: <sighs> well, the, well, the issue like with with the army hammer stuff is interesting because you know there's an element where it does seem like okay some of this did live in the realm of fantasy for him. Mm-hmm. Like I don't think mm-hmm. he was actually eating people. Like I mean that. <laughs> like that best, I'm a,
0: sorry, like, I do not mean.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> That's fair, but mm-hmm. You know, so like if it was just that, like oh, okay, he's got a cannibal fetish. I'd be like, okay, that's that's odd. But you know, like people have, like you said, people have what we would call quote unquote weird fetishes. Mm-hmm. Like you almost mm-hmm. don't want to use the word weird. The problem is then you start hearing the stories from his exes, and it does something. Right. Like the behavior did translate, even if he wasn't actually eating anybody. It did translate into actual substantive abuse. Right. This the Marilyn Manson stuff, what struck me is all. All of the women described the same pattern, which mm-hmm. started with love bombing, mm-hmm. which is a fairly new com- concept to me.
0: Can you explain that a little bit for so, anybody who doesn't know what that is?
1: So my understanding of this is that it's a tactic that many abusers use early on in a relationship where yeah. part of how they suck you in as they, quote, love bomb you, like they just shower you with affection. They make you feel so special. So amazing. There are stories about with Marilyn Manson, you know, two weeks after meeting one of these women saying you're my soulmate I I love you you know just yeah and and it can be almost this overwhelming experience particularly yeah. if it comes from someone with a certain charm or charisma manipulative nature that then once you're sucked in that turns into gaslighting physical abuse sometimes sexual abuse etc etc and that's the pattern you kind of see with the Marilyn Manson stuff Mm -hmm. and the reason I say it's like standard issue predatory behavior is you read these stories like I I probably shouldn't have said frat boys because I don't want to like impugn all the frat boys out there and that's what
0: made me think of army hammer right
1: (laughs) (laughs) but like well But it's the type of stories you hear about abusive assholes, regardless of whether they're covered in tattoos and they're shock rockers, like Marilyn Manson. That's why I say, like, there's nothing in the Marilyn Manson story that makes me think, ooh, this is because of his, like, deeply whatever artistic nature he just can't contain his impulse. like the type of excuses we've made for these assholes for right. Ever. centuries, you know yeah. forever. <laughs> like forever. it's just like, no, he's just an abusive prick. right the way, like all of these abusive pricks are abusive pricks. right. And so, like I said, yeah, like I my relationship with Marilyn Manson, I have not really been a fan for years, but he, you know, I would occasionally throw on like Antichrist Superstar a portrait of an American family, like some of the early albums kind of out of nostalgia. Mm-hmm. You know, sort of the, like he's like one of those '90s rockers that to me is kind of like Rob Zombie. Mm-hmm. Who, like, I'm not a huge Rob Zombie fan, but I, there was an era in my late teens, early 20s where I was super into White Zombie. So I'll occasionally like throw on Astro Creep 2000, you know, just right. to like you know plug back into 19 year old Scotty or
0: whatever, right?
1: But like Marilyn Manson, he's going into the trash can for me. Like, I'm just, I'm never going to listen to that motherfucker again. Mm. And by the way, just want to say, like, I've never heard anything about Rob Zombie other than that he's a very nice person. So oh, good <laughs> don't job. Want, don't want to conflate the two.
0: <laughs> right, but. right, right, right. Yeah. And I think that's just, I mean, you know, again, all of this basically boils down to the fact that like, there is no, it is again, something that you and I have talked about a lot. Um, It is something that is a very important like topic to me. But like intimate partner violence is Mm -hmm. something that is an issue that I am very kind of passionate about. And all of this, I think, again, you know, sort of putting Marilyn Manson and Army Hammer, you know, sort of putting them on the same on the same level just goes to show that there is no there's no template for abusive. Yeah, there's no type that it is like abuse is something that transcends education level, socioeconomic level, gender. Mm -hmm. Um, ethnicity race that like there are abusers everywhere and you know all this to again say that like i think i I think the more that we can talk about it and the more that we can name that behavior the the better everybody will be
1: right and i don't think you know when you read when you read some of these specific stories i don't think it's cancel culture quote unquote to say like Mm. like fuck marilyn manson i don't think there's any value to listening to his music at this point yeah Um, because you know we we talked about this a bit when we were talking about roman polanski and people like that you know everyone Mm -hmm. has their own personal relationship with these artists and if you are a marilyn manson fan the same way if you are a Harry Potter fan or you know uh, struggling a
0: Lovecraft fan
1: Lovecraft exactly as I've Mm -hmm. talked about reconciling the artist with the art you know that can be very hard and I'm not sitting here like judging you saying you have to like if you are into Marilyn Manson you have to stop listening you know that's a choice for yourself but for me it just boils down to fuck this guy (laughs) right I I don't really have much more to say about it other than fuck this guy
0: right Right, um, uh, and I'm slightly... going to have to
1: rewrite one of my novels, unpublished at this point, novels because I have a long section where I talk about Marilyn Manson and kind of what he represented to me in high school. And I just don't even, I don't even want that in there anymore. Like, yeah. it's, I'm going to have to rethink it, you know? Yeah. because I just, I, you know, I'd like to sort of excise him from my yeah. artistic life.
0: Yeah. So. Okay. On that note, let's yeah. get into talking about some cool weird shit.
1: Yeah, so my – I guess I'm going first this Your week, You're first, right? yeah, yeah. My story this week is about the Voynich Manuscript. Have you ever heard of the Voynich Manuscript?
0: I I don't know. I'm going to say maybe.
1: <laughs> Put you on the spot there. <laughs> yeah,
0: but whatever it is that I know is not a lot.
1: So where when I talked about Gobekli Tepe, I was saying this is one of the most mysterious places on earth. Mm-hmm. The Voynich Manuscript is probably the most mysterious book in existence.
2: Ooh.
1: Cool. Okay, let's get into it. Let's get into it. The Vintage Manuscript, what it is, it's an illustrated codex, handwritten in an apparently invented and meaningless, or, and I say apparently in quotes, meaningless language. Now, what is a codex? So a codex is essentially the ancestor of the modern book. So it's put together like a book with pages, but instead of being printed on paper, like wood pulp paper and Mm -hmm. run through a printing press, it's handwritten on either vellum or papyrus or even other materials like the earliest codexes like roman codexes were written on wax tablets okay so vellum is animal skin and then papyrus is like a paper that's made from the papyrus plant
0: okay and a font that none of us like (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly yeah
1: (laughs) so you can think of a codex as essentially like an intermediate step between like the scroll And then the modern book, which the modern book is probably like you can date the modern book back to like the Gutenberg Bible. Okay. So the Voynich manuscript, it's named after a guy named Wilfred Voynich. He was a Polish book dealer who bought the manuscript in 1912. Now, Voynich himself was kind of an odd dude, Mm -hmm. um, which has led to some of the uh, conspiracy theories around the Voynich manuscript, among them that it is a hoax perpetrated Mm. by Voynich, Okay. But I'm going to talk about why that's probably not true. Okay. Like I said, he was a Polish book dealer. He supposedly spoke 20 languages fluently, or at least he claimed to speak 20 languages fluently. Oh, wow. Okay. He was also at one point in his youth. I'm actually not sure how young he was, but at one point he was a socialist revolutionary. Mm.
2: Okay. And
1: that led to him being exiled in Siberia for five years. Um, okay.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Can you? Where the hell is Siberia? Because I, I've heard it's one of those things that is like very much in my brain because of pop okay. culture and all of that stuff. But the other day it came up, and I was like, "Where the hell is it?" And instead of googling it, I'm just going to ask you.
1: Okay. Well, I'm not. I'm certainly not an expert on Siberia, but I'm pretty good okay. at geography, so I think I okay. kind of know. So if you all look right. at Russia, Russia is a big, massive fucking country,
2: mm-hmm. and there's
1: the European portion of Russia, which is like where Moscow. St. So okay. Petersburg, all that is. And then there's the Caucasus Mountains that I think kind of split it. And that's when it moves into the Asian portion of Russia. And oh. as you move deeper into the Asian portion, that becomes Siberia. Oh. Um, and okay. it's a big, okay. vast, it's some of the big, biggest wilderness areas that are still sort of untouched. Mm. not very heavily populated um now it's not it doesn't go all the way to the east because once you get sort of towards like uh japan and korea that becomes what's called far east russia okay um so siberia is kind of like right it's not quite in the middle it's more east than the middle but it's just a big tract of land uh, and they were like hey this
0: kind of is awful so we will exile people to siberia yeah
1: Yeah, exactly yeah because there's nobody there it's just like trees and bears
0: Okay, um, were only Russians being exiled to Siberia? Or could people well, be like, I mean, hey. he, was,
1: he was Polish. So I, I'm ah, guessing at okay. this point, this would have been the late 1800s, early 1900s. You know, Poland's one of those countries that has been dominated by various powers over time yeah. it was, you know, Russia, Germany, Russia, you know.
2: Mm-hmm. different
1: empires have dominated it so i'm guessing at this point poland must have been sort of under russian domination like the okay. czarist russian government you know it was pre-soviet okay. I, i'm just guessing because why else would they send a polish guy to siberia okay
0: all okay. right okay so continue um,
1: please okay. <laughs> but so after he returned from exile he became a book dealer and he kind of fell into like the intellectual circle uh i think kind of around prague um, so this would have been actually at the time what would have been Czechoslovakia
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: but while he was a book dealer um, he was a very successful book dealer he did quote accidentally sell a forgery and I didn't do a lot of research into what that forgery was but I think it's mm-hmm. like pretty determined that it was a forgery he claimed it was an accident but people have questioned that so all of this has led a lot of people to be like mm, Voynich himself probably faked the Voynich manuscript okay now here's a quote this is oh so my sources for this by the way just real quick (laughs)
0: oops
1: uh always forget so wikipedia of
0: course Mm, obviously
1: there's a new yorker article by a guy named joseph livingstone called the unsolvable mysteries of the voynich manuscript that's from november of 2016 okay there's also this, this amuses me so there's two articles from ars technica both in september of 2016 the first one is the mysterious voynich manuscript has finally been decoded
0: Okay.
1: And then, like two days later, so much for that Voynich manuscript quote <laughs> solution. <laughs> and I'll get, I'll get to that.
0: <laughs> At least um, they came back and they yeah. were like, "RbRb what? guys." Yeah. Um, I mean, it's literally retraction. one was
1: September eighth, and the the second, the follow up article, September tenth. <laughs> <laughs> there's also an article from the art newspaper which is has yale's mysterious Voynich manuscript finally been deciphered that's from june of last year and i wow. want to talk about that because that one is kind of interesting and then there's a youtube video from uh like ted Ta- it's ted ed mm-hmm. uh, called the world's most mysterious book
0: God, thank God for TED Talks. Yeah.
1: So this quote, this comes from the New Yorker article. It says, Voynich believed that his impenetrable book contained authentic wisdom, or at least he said so during publicity kicks in the United States when he was trying to make his treasured book famous. When the time comes, he told the Times, I'm assuming the New York Times, Mm-hmm. I will prove to the world that the black magic of the Middle Ages consisted in discoveries far in advance of 20th century science. Very bold a claim, claim yeah. about this book. yeah. <laughs> now, all of the theories about it being a hoax, specifically a hoax perpetrated by Voynich, are kind of blown away by the fact that recently it has been radiocarbon dated. And the date is determined to be about f- Anywhere between 1404 and 1438. So this would be like late, late Middle Ages. Yeah.
0: Is there any way to to fake carbon dating?
1: I don't think so. Okay. And that's actually something I would like. I said when I think we were talking about Göbekli Tepe. Like whenever I try and like read about carbon dating, I'm like. (laughs) Going back to what I talked about last week with my math issues. I'm just like, uh, fuck this. I don't.
0: Right. I don't right. When the Wikipedia <laughs> article has math in it. I just uh, like, we're done. Nope.
1: Nope. Yeah. Right on out of there. But from what I understand, I don't think it's, you can particularly fake radio carbon dating. Okay. Um. And also, I think the people who radiocarbon dated it were legit. You know, it wasn't okay. Voynich doing it or anything. Okay. These were like modern uh, scientists looking. Okay. It. So it's been radiocarbon dated around f- anywhere between 1404 and 1438, which puts it at this kind of late middle age creation time. Mm-hmm. It's 240 pages of strange text and illustrations, but some of the pages are missing. They think it's like something like was originally 272 pages uh, okay. but some of it has been taken out for some reason okay now the book has been studied by professional cr- cryptographers including american and british codebreakers from world war 1 and world war 2 It is to this day never been deciphered. Because, like I said, it's written in this invented language or what it seems to be an invented language. Mm -hmm. So, here's a quote. This is from the New Yorker article about one of the people who was trying to decode it. It says, The next great mind to apply itself to the manuscript's code belonged to William F. Friedman, another army cryptographer who was among the first people to use computers for textual analysis. In 1925, Manley, I didn't write down who Manley is. So, someone named (laughs) Manley connected freedom and his wife elizabeth also a cryptographer with the manuscript sending them photographs they worked on the project for 40 years Ooh. friedman and his colleagues broke japan's code purple during the second world war mm. and friedman became the chief cryptanalyst for the war department and head of the signals intelligence service in the 40s and 50s so this dude knew his shit yeah historian david kahn called him the world's greatest cryptologist by 1944 friedman had formed the voynich manuscript study group with some colleagues The group never cracked the code. The Freemans did, however, provide an enigmatic message about the manuscript in an article in Philological Quarterly called Acrostics, Anagrams, and Chaucer, published in 1959. The article included a long excursus on the pointlessness of looking for anagrammatic ciphers. A note revealed that the statement itself was an anagram. The authors had left the solution to the anagram in a sealed envelope with the PQ editor. After William died in 1970, that editor revealed the message along with a reprint of the piece. And this is the message. The Voynich manuscript was an early attempt to construct an artificial or universal language of the a priori type. This is from Friedman. So I'll get to what that means here in a little bit. Okay. Okay. So before I get into kind of the history, because that gets into like questions of who created it, I want to just get into like the description of it. what it is so the book itself measures 9.3 or i should say the uh what did i say it was the codex Codex Mm -hmm. measures 9.3 by 6.4 inches with its vellum pages collected into 18 choirs what are called choirs so choir is essentially a measure of paper quantity usually means about 25 pages of the same same size and quality
2: okay
1: and then so it's and then there's 18 of these within the book but they think there were actually 20 okay it's written on a vellum parchment prepared from 14 or 15 entire calf skins, and then was written with a quill pen and iron gall ink for the text and figure outlines. Dating suggests that the text and illustrations were created at about the same time, and they think that there is actually two different hands writing the text, Okay. and then a third hand did the illustration so they think there's at least three people who likely worked on the codex okay it's bound in goat skin but this appears not that it's not the original binding but was added mm-hmm. later probably during the renaissance and they have actually identified insect holes mm-hmm. in the first and last pages of the book mm-hmm. this suggests it was probably originally bound in wood oh um, okay so while 240 pages remain it appears from the gaps and the page numbers which which oddly used standard roman numerals that they think it was 272 pages in 20 choirs these pages have been missing ever since voynich bought the manuscript so no one knows where
2: they are okay Um,
1: but also appears it might have been reordered at some points in history
2: Mm -hmm.
1: all of the materials used in its construction were common from that period of european history this early 1400s and then at a certain point it appears Like, it went through this long series of owners. It finally ended up in the library of someone named uh, Petrus Beck, who I think was the rector of what was called the Collegio Romano, which I'll talk a little bit about, Mm -hmm. uh, before finally being purchased by Voynich in 1912. Voynich held the manuscript for the rest of his life. After he died in 1930, ownership passed to his widow, Ethel, uh, who interestingly was a novelist herself. And okay. she wrote a book called The Gadfly, which I did not look into because
0: raddles. <laughs> because um, you hate female authors. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> yes, that's exactly the reason. <laughs> <laughs> this I want to say Shirley Jackson is one of my favorite writers of all time.
0: Um, uh-huh.
1: Sure, Scotty. Sure. Okay. And then after uh, Ethel died in 1960, she passed the manuscript on to her friend Ann Nil, who just turned right around and sold it to this antique book dealer named Hans Krauss. Okay. Uh, Krauss had it for a while, couldn't find any buyers for it, finally sold it to Yale University, and that's where it now resides, in the Benneke Library. Okay. Okay, so what the fuck is in this book? Yeah. So the text. Let's talk first about the text. Okay. Every page of the book contains text. Some of it is like pictures with kind of captions written in this text. Mm-hmm. Some of it is entire pages of text with just a few little illustrations. It's written in this unidentified language. Now there is a bit of extraneous writing here and there in Latin script, but most of the quote letters in this strange unidentified language are written with one or two pin strokes. and the quote alphabet contains what appear to be 20 to 25 distinct characters. There's a lot of speculation about whether it was written in code but there's some of the evidence to show that it wasn't a code uh, but is an actual language is mm-hmm. that it does not appear like the script all flows smoothly So usually when you're writing in code, you're like doing a cipher one letter at a time.
0: Right. Oh, interesting. Um,
1: This is written in this kind of flowing script that's almost like cursive. So that makes you think it's like it's a language someone knows. Right. Now, like I said, there are some Latin sequences. Uh, For instance, in the section that has some astrological diagrams, the names of the months March through December are written in Latin. Mm. The spelling of this Latin suggests an origin of perhaps medieval France, Italy, or the Iberian Peninsula. There's also four lines written in distorted Latin in this like kind of paragraph that is mostly this unknown script, but then there's four lines that are written in this Latin that is like heavily distorted. But even though the script is Latin, the words don't seem to make sense. <sighs> okay. Now people have tried to make transcriptions to identify these characters from the unknown language with Latin letters. Mm-hmm. But then when you put them together, the words are just nonsensical. What the
2: f- so
1: it's like, no one has been able to crack this. Now it's not just a ilu- text. Like I said, it also includes a lot of illustrations and the illustrations are fucking weird. Okay. Putting that right out there. <laughs> okay. So. So, people usually use the illustrations now when they're looking at it to sort of divide the book into six distinct sections. Since the text itself can't be read, it's sort of guesswork about what these sections actually mean. Mm-hmm. The last section is almost entirely written in text, but it does have small stars written in the margins of the pages, kind of up by the page numbers, it sounds like. Okay. So, the sections, this is what people are calling them now. But again, no one really fucking knows what this stuff mm-hmm. is. The first section is an herbal section. So, each page shows one or two plants. Along with a few paragraphs of text. It's typical of herbal guides at the time, but the plants are mostly alien and unidentifiable.
0: What? Yeah.
1: Like people don't know what the fuck these plants are. What the hell is this thing? Yeah. And there's, and you can see, like, I'll, I'll, I'll put the website in like our show notes or social Mm -hmm. media or somewhere where you can actually go look at the Voynich Manuscript because this Yale library has basically photographed the pages and you can look through the whole thing. And like the plants look like fucking sci-fi shit. Like they don't look like there are some plants that they sort of identify as like, oh, this might be a sunflower or something. But like to me, it doesn't look like a sunflower. It looks like to me, part of what I love about the Voynich Manuscript is it looks super Lovecraftian actually. Right. looks like shit out of like a Lovecraft story. Okay. So that's the first section. The second section is the quote astronomical section. So this is where it's got the diagrams of like the zodiac. So it's got these circular astronomical diagrams. They feature suns, moons, and stars, but sometimes don't seem to correspond with the suns, moons, and stars that we know, although some of them do. And then the suns like have these like little cartoon faces drawn on them. (laughs)
2: Which is
1: (laughs) weird. Okay. Now, one series of twelve diagrams shows the already known zodiacal symbols for the constellations. So, like, it'll have a picture of two fish for Pisces or a bull Mm -hmm. for Taurus, etc. Each of these diagrams is surrounded by these concentric rings of drawings of strange nude women. Uh, and i'll get to the the naked lady. there's more on the naked ladies in later
2: sections okay
1: Okay. Uh, and they kind of in these like concentric bands around the zodiac diagrams okay the women seem to be tethered or tied somehow to stars that then float around them okay so super strange the january and february sections appear to be missing and then the tories and aries sections are split into four paired diagrams with 15 women and 15 stars surrounding them okay And some of the diagrams are on these, like, fold-out pages. Okay. Now, this is what I think is the weirdest part of the book is the third section that they call the balneological section. And, again, I did not look up what balneological is. I probably (laughs) should have. Now, this is a dense text heavy section but it's interspersed with these drawings of these nude women some of them are wearing crowns they're all bathing in strange pools in this like greenish liquid and the pools are connected with like elaborate network of pipes okay very weird it's very weird when you look at it Okay. The next section is the cosm- quote, cosmological section. Mm-hmm. So it's got more of these circular diagrams, but these are more obscure in nature. It also has a bunch of circular foldouts. One of these spans six pages and contains a, what they call a map of what appear to be nine islands connected by various causeways also has i believe this also has more of the naked ladies on it what's with the
0: naked ladies
1: well i'm gonna get to that okay okay, what they think maybe the naked ladies mean okay and then the islands feature castles and what appears to be a volcano but the islands do not correspond to any known map of earth so yeah
0: this is so strange because you've got a language that Seems to not exist, but there is some some stuff in there of language languages that do exist. Yeah, some
2: Latin,
0: right? Then you've got plants and stuff which don't exist, but you've got new drawings of females and pipes. Mm-hmm. But then you've got maps that seem to be of nowhere. What the hell? Okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah, what exactly <laughs> the uh, next section is what's called the pharmaceutical section so it shows what appears to be a lot of the plants in the herbal section but now like different parts of the plants some of them are put into what look like apothecary jars okay so people are thinking this may be some sort of like like manual on this is how you use the plants for various uh,
0: plants. okay okay
1: and then the last section and this is the part that i thought would relate more to your story but i don't think it does <laughs> Okay. (laughs) Is what they call recipes.
2: Yay! But the thing is,
1: they don't actually know that these are recipes for anything. Oh, What it is, is it's almost all text broken into these short paragraphs. They appear to be recipes. And then this is the section where there are stars drawn up in the margins kind of by the page numbers. Okay. So that's what the Voynich Manuscript is. Okay. In terms of, like, if you were to go look at it. Let's go through the history of it a little bit. Okay. So it's first confirmed to have been owned by an alchemist in Prague named Georg Barash in the mid-1600s. So I did a little bit of reading on alchemy, and mostly it was pretty boring, but just very quickly. (laughs) Um, It's an ancient branch of proto-scientific natural philosophy that attempts to purify, mature, and perfect certain materials. So it's the idea of like using alchemical processes to turn lead into gold things like that they thought yep. they could you know transubstantiate or transform these different mm-hmm. materials metals etc so it's basically like early 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 pre-scientific chemistry mm-hmm. um, with a lot of like magic elements of magic and you know again astrology and things like yeah so this baresh this Georg Barash. Um, (laughs) It's probably just George, but I'm calling him (laughs) Georg. He's
0: like, listen up, asshole.
1: Yeah. (laughs) He had this book and he didn't know what the fuck it was. And and it's not clear where he got it, but he called the book a Sphinx and then kind of complained about it, saying that it was taking up space uselessly in his library. So finally he decided to try and figure out what it was. (laughs) Okay. And he contacted this Jesuit scholar, a guy named uh, Althanasius Kircher. Who worked at what was called the Collegio Romano, which is like a, I believe it was a college, like a university in Rome. Mm-hmm. Now, Kircher had claimed that he deciphered a bunch of ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs and actually went so far as to publish a dictionary of like, okay. like a Coptic dictionary of Egyptian language.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: Barash was like, maybe he can look at this and figure out what it was, but I think he didn't actually want to give it to this Kircher because he was afraid Kircher was just going to like run off with it. And it mm-hmm. sounds like Kircher wanted to run off of it. He, he, okay. he wanted the book for himself. Okay. But Barash mm-hmm. wouldn't hand it over. So this kind of went nowhere. But then after Beresh died, he passed the book to another friend, a guy named Johannes Marcus Marcy, and that guy was the rector at Charles University in Prague. Marcy finally did send the book to Kircher, and he sent it with this cover letter. So this is what the cover letter reads, uh, sent from Marcy to Kircher. He says, Reverend and distinguished Sir, Father in Christ. This book, bequeathed to me by an intimate friend, I destined for you, my very dear Althanasius, as soon as it came into my possession, for I was convinced that it could be read by no one except yourself. The former owner of this book asked your opinion by letter, copying and sending you a portion of the book from which he believed you would be able to read the remainder, but he at that time refused to send the book itself. To its deciphering, he devoted unflagging toil, as is apparent from attempts of his, which I send you herewith, And he relinquished hope only with his life. But his toil was in vain, for such sphinxes as these obey no one but their master, Kircher. Except, uh, are these, uh, but his toil was in vain, for such sphinxes as these obey no one but their master, Kircher. So he's talking to Kircher. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Kircher's not the master. Um, right. Accept <laughs> now this token, such as it is, and long overdue though it may be of my affection for you, and burst through its bars, if there are any with your wanted success. Dr. Raphael, a tutor in the Bohemian language to Ferdinand III, then King of Bohemia, told me the said book belonged to the Emperor Rudolf, and he presented to the bearer who brought him the book 600 Ducats. He believed the author was Roger Bacon, the Englishman. On this point, I suspend judgment. It is your place to define for us what view we should take thereon. To whose favor and kindness I unreservedly commit myself and remain at the command of your reverence, Johannes Marcus Marcy of Kronlund, Prague. And this is dated 19th of August, 1665. So they think this Dr. Raphael he mentioned, is he's thought to be someone named Raphael sobierd who's a bohemian lawyer wow. and writer who is also a poet and cryptographer. And I was like, oh, this guy's probably interesting. And then I looked on his Wikipedia page, and it's like, uh, he was a lawyer and writer who also wrote poetry and is related to the Voynich manuscript at the end. So I was like, okay, that's it.
2: <laughs> oh, Sorry. what a disappointing.
1: <laughs> oh, I know, it was very anticlimactic. <laughs> It was real sad because I loved his name. And I was like, he's, he didn't do much. But let's talk a little bit about Roger Bacon, because okay. Roger Bacon is one of the people that are still brought up as a possible author. Mm. Of okay. so Roger Bacon was a 13th century philosopher and Franciscan friar, and he's known as one of the forefathers of scientific methodology. So he really is known for he placed an emphasis on studying nature through empiricism and demonstrable evidence, which you know, this is the Middle Ages, so this was not common at the time. <laughs> like, yeah, let's actually like use evidence to before we say that this like melts actually the backbone of a dragon or something.
0: Hot take. Evidence. Yeah. And I think
1: probably the medieval people were like,
0: burn him, he's a witch. (laughs) I'm sure they did. (laughs) Crush him with a stone. Yeah.
1: But he was also a linguist, and he was known for describing what later came to be known as universal grammar. Mm. So the idea of universal grammar, which is now mostly associated with Noam Chomsky, actually – is basically that there is a genetic component to language development and that there's a certain set of structural rules in regards to language that are innate and independent of sensory experience so basically he's saying that all languages are connected to this universal grammar that is innate to the human brain okay Um, yeah and it's it's even now like kind of sounds like it's kind of a controversial theory Mm -hmm. so for roger bacon to be kind of saying this shit back in the 13th century yeah again they
0: were they were like tie him to a chair throw him in the sea yeah i mean i think he was
1: actually he was fine (laughs) he was like the rector of a university (laughs) and stuff i like to imagine that they thought he was a witch so
2: right Um,
1: bacon was for instance another little piece of trivia about bacon is that he was the first european to actually record the formula for gunpowder which had been invented in china in the ninth century now even though he was really responsible for this kind of like what we would think more modern thinking about science he was still pretty fundamentally medieval in his thinking mm, mm-hmm. but he was responsible for revising some of the uh, curriculum of the medieval university and oriented it more towards like what we would think of as the scientific method. Okay. So this Johannes Marcy thought or claimed that people told him that this book was written by Roger Bacon. And it seems like Voynich himself, when he got a hold of the book, he also assumed it was written by Bacon. But when they did the radiocarbon dating,
2: Mm
0: -hmm.
1: the book actually comes two centuries after Bacon. What
0: the fudge is going on with this book?
1: So they're like, that that theory kind of goes out the window. Right. So after Kircher and this Dr. Raphael had the manuscript it disappears sort of from the record for like 200 years okay like no one's talking about it nothing nefarious there necessarily it was probably just stored with like all of kirch's correspondence mm-hmm. at this library of collegio romano in mm-hmm. rome and then you know kind of i think it ended up at the vatican for a while sounds like it moved around a lot and i, I didn't write a lot of that down because it wasn't that pertinent but at a certain point does Voynich, he went to buy all these essentially it sounds like vatican held manuscripts i think there are 30 of them Mm -hmm. and one of them was this vintage manuscript he took a look at it and was like what the fuck is is this yeah yeah so let's get to some theories okay so theories of purpose What is this book? What was it meant to be? Mm -hmm. So at a first glance, it seems to be what's called a pharmacopoeia, which they think might address topics related to medieval medicine. doesn't exactly explain all the astronomical, cosmological, or even the balneological sections, Mm -hmm. which is the naked ladies in the baths. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. It also seems weird to say it's a pharmacopoeia because the herbs and the herbal and pharmaceutical sections cannot be identified. So a few resemble known plants like a pansy or sunflower, maidenhair, fern, but not exactly. Most of these plants just seem completely fantastical. Okay. Some have theorized that the balneological sequence deals with alchemy, but the illustrations don't really bear much resemblance to anything related to alchemical practices of the time. Um, So that seems like, a bit of a stretch mm-hmm. um, now it could be this is one of the prevailing theories it could be an encyclopedia of a culture that was that had a spoken but unwritten language and that the script written by these european probably monks or something was mm-hmm. their attempt to create an alphabet for the spoken language i'll talk a little bit more about that the thing is but if it's one of these cultures like what fucking culture is it because like the plants Right, again. Again, you got to go back to the plants. The plants and some of the astrological stuff doesn't really correspond to known stars. Mm -hmm. So that kind of seems to throw that out the window.
2: Okay.
1: Or at least puts it into question. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Okay, theories of authorship. Roger Bacon, who I Mm -hmm. mentioned, mostly just debunked. Uh, mm-hmm. probably not him some people think it was the 16th century occultist and alchemist a guy named john d but this also has been debunked because whereas roger bacon came a couple hundred years before the voyage manuscript john d was a couple hundred years after the voyage manuscript. Ooh, okay so that doesn't seem to fit i really like this one
0: mm-hmm. uh
1: some people think it's a coven of italian witches Ooh, uh, sign me up a lot of people think it's something to do with aliens of course okay of course and then A fair number of people, like just looking through like Reddit and stuff, are like it's Atlantis, it's ancient Atlantis. So that seems to be a prevailing theory. And then, of course, there's this idea that it's a hoax or forgery by Voynich. Mm -hmm. This seems largely discredited by the radiocarbon dating. Okay. Also, some people think it's a hoax or forgery by some con man from the Middle Ages. But they're like, but it's too like precisely put together, like. Like what would who would they be trying to hoax with this fucking
2: thing? Right. A
1: couple other theories. there's There's an Italian engineer by the name of Giovanni Fontana mm-hmm. um, from the time period, I believe, of the manuscript's authorship. He has a bunch of illustrations that sort of resemble the drawings in the Weagech manuscript. Mm-hmm. Fontana himself used cryptography in some of his own writings. But there's nothing else that really connects him to the Voynich manuscript. And he was known for when he used, like, codes in his own writing. It was, like, very simple kind of substitution codes. Okay. Not this, like, complex flowing script that the Voynich manuscript seems to be. And then some people have said there was a dude named Jacobus Synapius. He was a pharmacist and doctor to the Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf II. Okay. Okay. Um, now this comes from the fact that his signature is right on the first page of the book. What? <laughs> um, but <laughs> the more research they've done, Senapius was also later than the radiocarbon dating. What the kind of thing happened? Is it Synapius owned the book at one point and sort of signed it? Like you know, when you're in elementary school and you had to put your name in the front of a textbook.
0: I still put my name in the in books because people borrow <laughs> them and then don't ever give them back. Never give them back. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, so it seems
1: like it seems like it was more of a property of Johannes synapius okay. written by Johannes <laughs> okay. okay, theories about the language. Okay. So the language is called Voinachese by <laughs> enthusiasts of this okay. book, theories it could be a very complicated cipher but it's never been cracked as i said even by nasa cryptographers okay world war ii code breakers like no one's been able to crack it and it also doesn't really match any of the known cipher systems that are out there mm-hmm. um some people think it's a form of shorthand so that it is actually written in latin but in this kind of weird abbreviated form that was unique to the author but uh. not accepted by most scholars Okay. problems with this theory is there's at least two authors so two people right. must have had the same shorthand and like you would think these people would have written other things nothing has ever been found with script that looks even close to the script in the Voynich manuscript
0: oh this story is so frustrating
1: yeah why well, don't we talk about the believe the weirdest thing believability scale you know okay <laughs> <laughs> um where i'm gonna put this on that some people think it's mostly nonsense but essentially with like certain letter, like maybe the second letter of each word if you take the second letter out and put them together maybe that creates some sort of meaning so mm-hmm. it would be another form of a code
2: mm-hmm.
1: but again no one's been able to like crack anything no one's been able to find any patterns now some of the more interesting theories is that it could be a natural language so essentially a natural language is a language that evolves naturally through use of repetition, but without conscious planning. So most spoken languages Mm -hmm. would be considered natural languages. So it could just be some natural language that has died off or a natural dialect of a language that's known that was maybe super regional. So it's been kind of forgotten. This is different from a constructed or formal language, which I'll get to in just a second. So there's a linguist for the... NSA in this country. So even like the NSA is trying to figure this shit out. It's a guy named <laughs> okay. James R. Child, he's a expert on Indo-European languages. He thinks it's written in a quote hitherto unknown German dialect. He claims to have identified skeletal syntax of several elements which are reminiscent of certain Germanic languages. But okay. I couldn't find anything to really like back that up. Anyway. Okay. Could have also been, like I said before, a medieval European scholars trying to invent an alphabet for a language that was known as a spoken language, but was not yet a written language. And this goes to the idea that it was this like encyclopedia of some sort of forgotten culture. It's, it's similar to what is the Rongo Rongo script of Easter Island, okay. which is a series of like hieroglyphs that have never been able to be deciphered. Mm. Because they think okay. it was by a culture that just died out. Um, and it was okay. like, they didn't leave a lot of written material. Now some people think it's a constructed language. So a constructed language would be something like computer language or like a formal legalese or something is like a constructed okay. language. Okay. There are definitely theories that it's evolved out of like an Asian language, like Chinese or Vietnamese. Okay. And maybe they're trying to apply some sort of Latin esque script to this for them. Very, very foreign language. Mm -hmm. But it's like Chinese and Vietnamese, these were known languages at the time, you know, 1400s. So that seems a little weird to me. Now, there's a couple theories about it having a origin in the quote new world. Okay. So some scientists believe that the plants, while not common in Europe, actually could represent some of the new world vegetation. So North American and South American
2: vegetation.
1: Yeah, I am not an expert on North or South American vegetation, except for what we have around here. But I look at these plants, I'm like, it doesn't look like anything I know. But that doesn't mean anything because I don't know anything. Okay. Um, <laughs> and they think, and so there's one theory that it's a representation of the, and I'm gonna get this pronunciation wrong, Nahuatl language, which is uh-huh. I believe like uh-huh. Mexico. I believe mm-hmm. it's like, but the radiocarbon dating again. Sort of suggests that this can't work because the manuscript is older than the European colonization of the Americas. Yeah. Yeah, it's from the early 1400s. So no one had made it over. I mean, the Vikings, I guess, made it here. But like, that was it. Okay. Some people think it's a lost Mayan codex. Again, radiocarbon dating seems Mm. to kind of go against that. Mm-hmm. A lot of people think it's got an occult origin. Mm-hmm. Of course. Um, and of course, you know, they're pointing to this John Dee and people like that. And then this is one of the ones I find the most interesting. I don't know how oh. realistic it would be, but mm-hmm. they think it could be a, an example of glossolalia, which is otherwise known as speaking in tongues. Ooh. So they think it could literally have been channeled. Oh. <gasps> From the spirit world, it could also be a form of outsider art. Some things that point to this direction is that the text appears to be very stream of consciousness. They've been been able to identify patterns of like where words repeat and stuff. And it seems almost like babble. Yeah. So this would sort of point to something like speaking in tongues. They said it could be a con- transcription of someone hearing voices, and this could be either someone with like schizophrenia or <laughs> literally hearing alien slash spectral voices from what? Them. Okay, yeah, I understand why you like that one. Of course, um, yep. And I read a couple places that they think it is possible that the author was suffering a migraine while he wrote it because migraines mm-hmm. can provoke glossolalia. Problem with that theory, I think, is again written in a couple different hands. Yeah. So it's like unless you have Two dudes with the exact same symptoms of a migraine at the exact same time, right in this thing. I don't know that that holds, holds up. Okay, let's get to, so this goes back to, well, I was laughing at my sources of the Ars Technica. <laughs> right, right, right. So this dude is a history researcher and a TV writer, a guy named Nicholas Gibbs. He claimed in 2017, he's like, I've cracked the code. I've determined what the Voynich manuscript is.
0: Okay.
1: Um, so this is what he had to say. He said that studying the, the manuscript, he saw tiny details that led him to think he was looking at common Latin abbreviations. So he thinks it was essentially a guide to women's health and it was actually mostly plagiarized from other sources. So it's like a gynecological text. Okay. This is a quote from that first Ars Technica article. It says, from the herbarium incorporated into the Voynich manuscript, a standard pattern of abbreviations and ligatures emerged from each plant entry, he wrote. So this is Gibbs saying, and he he had written another article and Ars Technica was kind of quoting it. The abbreviations correspond to the standard pattern of words used in the herbarium Apulius Platonicus. So AQ equals water, DQ equals decoc, con equals confundo. Etc. Etc. So it wasn't a code at all; it was shorthand. So he's one of the people saying that he thinks it's shorthand. Okay, the text would have been very familiar to anyone at the time who was interested in medicine. I call bullshit on that because if it would have been familiar to people interested in medicine, why are there no other books written in the shorthand? So, but he's basically saying that it was a gynecological manual, and that the balneological section shows baths being prescribed for women's health, which was very common at the time. Kind of came from the Romans; they thought. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, something wrong with your lady bits, go take a bath. That was their magical cure for everything. Right.
0: Which in some cases is true,
1: but... But often not.
0: <laughs> but, yeah. But, when, but, but, I mean, like, that's true for, like, you know, hemorrhoids. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, after right. you give birth and that kind of a thing. Right.
1: Well, I mean, you know, baths are good. No, no shade to baths. But I don't no. think it's... It's not going to cure you of, you know, something like serious you know like no. a cyst on your ovary or something but but I don't this think is so <laughs> you know this was the idea I mean it is medieval okay. text so this was the idea they also think the zodiac section is included because medieval doctors thought that certain remedies worked best under specific astrological signs mm. okay and then also from the ars technical article it says Gibbs even identified one image copied of course from another manuscript of women holding donut-shaped magnets in the baths even back then people believed in the pseudoscience of magnets and i'm like that sounds like its own rabbit hole of just like yeah magnets yeah do a podcast episode about magnets
0: yeah well i mean i think it's clear that some type of medical quackery episode will be coming at some point we really we really should do one at some point yeah it's medical quackery is fascinating yeah
1: but like i said about a week later gibbs was pretty much debunked so from that second Arts technica article which is basically <laughs> the one so much for that solution <laughs> right it says last week a hist- history researcher and television writer named nicholas gibbs published a long article in the times literary supplement about how he cracked the code in the mysterious one manuscript unfortunately say experts his analysis was a mix of stuff we already knew and stuff he couldn't possibly prove
0: oh
1: and then here's here's another quote from that same kind of debunking article. It says, in his article, Gibbs claimed that he'd figured out the Voynich manuscript was a women's health manual whose odd script was actually just a bunch of Latin abbreviations. He provided two lines of translation from the text to, quote, prove his point. Mm-hmm. However, this isn't sitting well with people who actually read medieval Latin. Medieval Academy of America director Lisa Fagan Davis told the Atlantic Sarah Jing they're not grammatically correct. It doesn't result in Latin that makes sense. Then she added, frankly, I'm a little surprised that the Times Literary Supplement published it. They had simply sent it to the Beinecke Library they would have rebutted it in a heartbeat. So I love the tone being like,
0: um, this guy
1: can eat a bag of dicks because like, he doesn't know what he's talking
0: about. Well, I love that it's that. And then it's also like, and shame on you. And shame for, on you yeah.
1: for just buying his line of bullshit. Yeah. Um, like
0: you you call yourself a journalist. Yeah. Yeah.
1: She went on to say, Davis noted that a big part of Gibbs claim rests on the idea that the Voynich manuscript once had an index that would provide a key to the abbreviations. Unfortunately, he has no evidence for such an index other than the fact that the book does have a few missing pages, but the missing pages are missing from like the middle of the book, not.
2: from mm-hmm. the end.
1: So mm-hmm. again, like seems like a line of bullshit. Mm-hmm. However, there is a fair amount of thought that it is. A medieval medical treatise on women's health. Like that could be correct. Okay. But this wasn't his discovery. Many scholars have been saying this for years. So it says essentially, Gibbs rolled together a bunch of already existing scholarship and did a highly speculative translation without even consulting the librarians at the Institute. Where the book resides. So that's again, what that's what
0: she's real pissed off about.
1: Yeah, well, is it that, like you didn't even consult with us? Not to not to get too into sexual politics here, but this does seem like some bullshit a dude would do, and then have his shit called on by a smarter woman. <laughs> <laughs> you
0: know, <laughs> like this is the one hundred percent the guys that are like, I don't understand why you need feminine hiding hygiene products when you can just hold it until you go to the bathroom. Yeah, and then people are like, that's not how it works, and they're like. Yes. Mm. It is. I mean, I I
1: feel like this this Lisa Fakin Davis is basically being like, um, don't mansplain the Voynich Man manuscript because <laughs> you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Yeah. Now this is more interesting. This is from an article. This is from the article that was from June of last year. This sounds a little more like they may be onto something.
0: Okay.
1: So a German Egyptologist, a guy named Hans Reiner Heinig of the Römer und Palazius Museum which okay. I'm assuming is in Peoria, Illinois. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's claiming he he thinks he figured out what, what it is, but he has, he's not claiming he has fully translated it yet. Okay. So this is from that article. It says, countless decipherment attempts were made, Hanig writes in an article in German explaining his methodology. A lot of languages were proposed, such as Latin, Czech, or among others, Nuatl, spoken by the Ad's text, mm-hmm. just to name a few. The word structure leaves only one possible explanation. The manuscript was not composed in an Indo-European language. So he thinks that the language is Semitic, which means it's derived either from Arabic, Aramaic, or Hebrew. Mm. And he actually thinks it's probably Hebrew. uh, And these are all languages languages that would have been spoken by the medieval scholars who would have written the manuscript in the early 1400s mm-hmm. he says so this Hennig says he has identified a connection between certain Voynich characters and Hebrew and says he has managed to translate a few sentences I could not find anyone saying what the sentences are that he translated okay. the actual translation of the Voynich book will need a couple years of work he says even if specialists in Hebrew language were all well versed in medieval Hebrew and terminology of botanical and medical text take over the analysis the character of the script the pronunciation which one needs to get used to the peculiarity of the vocabulary of the period will cause a lot of trouble even to a native speaker of hebrew so this is like the like i said this is the most recent article i found this is from june of last year Mm -hmm. and i do got to say like that sounds somewhat plausible Like, this sounds more plausible than dude, fucking mansplaining dude. Right. This sounds like, okay, there's an actual methodology behind it, but we will find out. Now, I did say I wanted to, like, get to where I put this on the believability scale of it (laughs) being, like, (laughs) supernatural or aliens or something like that. Uh And, like, before I read this goddamn article from last year, which kind of just ruins everything, Mm -hmm. I would have put it at, like, an eight or a nine for me i would have been like this is fucking aliens like there's no other explanation it's fucking aliens look at these goddamn plants that don't exist fucking aliens or it's fucking where it's like interdimensional something or it's channeling some fucking demon spirit from the netherworld or something and then this fucking dude comes along and is like no no, it's hebrew and i'm like "Ah, it's probably hebrew
0: (laughs) damn it it, (laughs) so it goes from like an eight
1: or nine down to like ai am i'm gonna leave it at four Really, I'm I'm holding well, on to it but, enough to leave it at four.
0: But I mean the believe like what are like what is the believability of the believability scale, right? I mean the thing exists, it's
1: well that that it's aliens or ghosts or something.
0: Okay. So the believability scale is about it being a supernatural entity, right, background, whatever. So the believability scale is about supernatural uh origin origin okay
1: or paranormal origin i
0: guess okay paranormal supernatural that kind of thing okay all right okay but we we agree that the thing does in fact exist (laughs) yeah no well i mean that's like
1: believability skill that is a fucking 10 out of 10 like you can find pictures of it (laughs) no i'm saying like yeah like put it on the level of like a cryptid or something you know like like is this paranormal or supernatural like before i read this article in preparation for this episode i was fully prepared to be like this is fucking aliens wrote this goddamn thing right and i'm like i mean you know the cool thing is like oh maybe it wasn't written by aliens maybe it was written by jews and like you know as a jew i'm like okay well i'll take that's still cool it's still cool but i still like the idea i still want it to be aliens like maybe maybe some aliens were channeling some shit to some jews
0: Yeah. I mean, the plants. The plants, again.
1: Yeah, the plants are the big question mark for me. The astronomical stuff.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. It's
1: also very possible it was written by someone with some form of mental illness. But that seems questionable because it is too rationally put together. Also, multiple
0: authors. Multiple authors. So so that
1: is the story. That's about all I got on the Voynich Manuscript. Like I said, you can go, and I'm not going to give you the whole web address here, but you can go to binnekeelibrary.yale.edu and find it and look at it. I will post the uh, address uh, in the show notes.
0: Okay. Fantastic. Yay. Well done. Super weird. All right. So we're just going straight into mine? Yeah. Awesome. So I am going to talk about, so this was originally supposed to be accidental foods, of which there are some like foods that were discovered by accident, but also peppered in here are just uh, some cool food origin stories. Nice. So my sources for this are obviously Wikipedia. We've also got the New Yorker, BBC News, What's Cooking America, WestJet magazine, The Spruce Eats, All Things Interesting, Alfajores Bakery Blog, Vamos and the
1: Well, you texted me over the weekend and you were like, I had more fun doing the research for this.
2: Yeah. this
0: Doing the research for this was a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of fun. And maybe I'm trying to think maybe the most like purely joyful research that I've had mm-hmm. to do for an episode yet. Like there's no, there's no real yuckiness, Good. uh, in this cause it's about food. So that's fantastic. Okay. Two things. Uh, well actually, no, just one thing first, but it involves two questions. So I actually started doing the research on this a couple of months ago. This has mm-hmm. been an episode that I think was one of the original, like one of my original topics yeah. when we first sat down for this. I mean, it's, it's
1: literally in our show description. It is. (laughs) it It (laughs) absolutely is (laughs) finally getting to it
0: finally getting to it but so in the googling of like you know accidental foods food origins that kind of a thing when you google that you know if you scroll down the google page you'll eventually get to the section where it's like people also search for and two things popped up in that that i texted scotty about months ago and found them again and it made me laugh (laughs) one of the questions was what year was food invented Mm. and the other one was who invented food
1: (laughs) um (laughs) it's such a weird like you don't think of food as being something that's invented
0: well because if you think of whole foods, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you think of apples, vegetables, a pig, you know, right. it was like well it was it was there.
1: Just a pig walking around with an apple <laughs> in its
0: mouth. Yeah. <laughs> now, granted, at some point somebody looked at that pig and was like, I think I can eat that pig. Uh, <laughs> that
1: seems super human. <laughs> like a human like, oh look at this thing over there. I'm going to fucking
2: eat it.
0: I'm going to eat that pig. I'm eat um that pig. <laughs> Yeah, and so like I understand the spirit of the question, but it's also just like I, I, like food has been around as long as life. Like, <laughs> life has been around. Yeah. So I, don't, I, I wonder what they found in in the googling yeah. of that. Okay, jumping in. Uh, so our first thing is going to be champagne. We're going to talk about that. So nice. uh, at the beginning of everything or at least somewhere within the, in all of these little food origin stories, I'll tell you what the food is just in case you are not familiar with the food, whether that's Scotty or any of our listeners. um, It feels like champagne is something that is known by everybody, but just in case you don't know, champagne is a sparkling wine and it's associated with the champagne region of France. While people do use the word champagne as a generic term to describe any sparkling wine, in the European Union and some other countries, it is actually illegal it's not just like frowned upon. Oh, wow. It is illegal mm-hmm, to label any product champagne unless it comes from the champagne region.
1: Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah.
0: So the Romans. I wonder what, just real quick. I wonder what they do if they like catch you. I would that. be willing to bet it's a fine. Okay, I was like, you know, can you or something? I don't think. I mean, maybe if it's like, if it's Singapore, um, yeah. but like, I think it's probably just like, hey, like you've got to, like, you have to take that off the bottle. Yeah, there's a it's great like false joke. advertising. Right, yeah. it's false advertising. There's a great joke in Shit's Creek, the show Shit's Creek. You know, they're off in this little like teeny tiny town, and you know, it's a family who has been very rich and they've lost mm-hmm. everything and they've had to move to this little kind of podunk town, and they're they're always talking about like, should we get some champagne? And they're like, yeah. And they're like, well, the townspeople are like, well, it's not champagne, it's champagne. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> like generic champagne. So they're always like, break out the champagne. Um, okay. So back to the origin of champagne. The Romans in their quest for like global domination uh planted the first vineyards in the champagne region because obviously imperialism is always more fun if you're drunk.
2: Right.
0: Yeah. So that tracks. That tr- <laughs> that <laughs> tracks. Um wine in general and champagne specifically is actually like a super super vast topic uh oh, yeah. that I'm going to leave to the experts of which we know one. Yeah, so we w- yeah, have we a have guess. a
1: episode or something
0: yeah like we that. have a dear friend who's a, a sommelier and if she ever wants to come on the show and talk cool wine facts with us we'd love to have you and you know we'll buy you a dinner or a coffee or something to or some wine yeah or some wine but we, you're just gonna have to be like buy me that one so that scotty and i don't buy you the yeah, shitty wine you, that we would buy for if ourselves. you leave it to me
1: it's just gonna be like yellowtail or something <laughs>
0: Yellowtail is never going to be a sponsor now, but okay. (laughs) Sorry. Um, (laughs) Okay. Anyway, sparkling wine was discovered by accident. Essentially what happened was that wines were being bottled again in the Champagne region of France. Mm -hmm. They were being bottled and then stored in cold cellars during cold winters, which basically kind of hit the pause button on fermentation. Mm -hmm. That fermentation, when it would start to warm up, that fermentation would kick on again. Ah. When the fermentation would start up again, all of that yeast... So... I, th- I think I think this is correct. I think yeast and fermentation is a part of all alcohol production. I like it's what creates so. the alcohol. Yeah. So when the fermentation would start back up again, all that yeast would get all gassy again, and they'd start burping up all this carbon dioxide, mm. uh, which would then create the bubbles. A lot of the bubbles, like, so it would create all this bubbles, all of this gas in these like thin wine bottles yeah. that the wine was being stored in. And a lot, most of them would explode. They'd shatter. Wow. You know, everybody would be like, oh my God, what is that? Because it was all these exploding wine bottles, but a couple survived. And that is when. Like they would go and check check out what was going on with the bottles that had survived, and they discovered that the bottles contained this like sparkling, fizzy, bubbly drink. Yeah, it was actually like when that sparkling wine was discovered, it was like, oh man, because it was like we've ruined this wine <laughs> yeah. by making it by making it fizzy. Um, there is conflicting information on the internet as like everything. At, let me also say this. All of this is conflicting information. For every one story you, s- you hear about one food that is was discovered or created or whatever by this one person, there's another site that'll be like, no, that's wrong. This is this. Yeah. So take all of these stories in the spirit in which they are being given, which is just like cool tales. Cool tales that might be true. Might might be true. Okay, so there's conflicting information on the internet about who exactly discovered that mm-hmm. this happened with the wine and when. The French are obviously very much like, yo, champagne is ours. But there's also some Brits that are like, mm, we actually discovered it in 1662, and that was 30 years prior to Dom Perignon, when that, Dom Perignon discovered it in 1697.
1: That just sounds super British to me. Mm-hmm. Sorry, British fans and friends listening, but that's <laughs> look,
0: nobody's bad. trying to drink British champagne. No. Um <laughs> uh, so they say that to which the French are like cool, 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 cool. But the drunk ass Benedictine monks at the Abbey of Saint Hilaire were rocking out with their bubbly as far back as 1531. So eat a dick. So eat a obviously dick. that is a direct quote from the Brits <laughs> to the British. <laughs>
1: It seems like a lot of world history revolves around British people or French people saying eat a dick to the other.
0: Group. Right. So, precisely. Precisely. Yeah. It's a popular legend that Dom Perignon, who it was a real person and I believe mm-hmm. was a monk, mm-hmm. invented or discovered Champagne, but that's not true, though he did make a lot of important contributions to both mm-hmm. still and sparkling wines from okay. Champagne. Okay. Chocolate chip cookies. Oh. <laughs> Okay. This is
1: exciting for me. Okay.
0: Okay. (laughs) Oh, that's great because we're going to talk about that in a sec too. Uh, Okay. So the origin of chocolate chip cookies had a great, like, accidental discovery tale, but it seems that the cookies were actually very intentionally created. Mm. The cookie was invented by Ruth Graves Wakefield. Some sources also say that another woman by the name of Sue Brides was involved, but literally the only thing I can find about this Sue Brides woman is that at some point in time, her daughter, niece, Something published what she said was the original chocolate chip cookie recipe. But she's nowhere in any of the rest of the story. The accepted history. Yeah. So so I don't know. I don't know where she came from. So in 1938, Ruth Graves Wakefield was the co owner and cook at the Toll House Inn in Whitman, Massachusetts. Ruth cooked all of the dishes and desserts at the inn, and she'd been making this thin butterscotch nut cookie that she served with ice cream that was, like, super successful. Like, everybody loved the cookie, but she was like, I want to see if I can, like, come up with something else. Again, everybody loved the cookie. There was no need to mess with it, but she was like, "Mm, I Uh, want to see what's going on there. There's a couple of legends here, and I'm going to tell you about all of them. The first one... uh, in the creation of the chocolate chip cookie. The first one is that Wakefield had run out of Baker's chocolate. And so she added chocolate chips with the idea that the chocolate would melt and disperse into the dough making Uh. chocolate cookies. The second is that Wakefield had run out of nuts and in desperation chopped up a yellow label Nestle unsweetened chocolate bar and threw it into the dough. The third is that the dough was being, the dough for this plain butterscotch nut cookie was being mixed in a big industrial mixer and that the vibrations from the mixer knocked a bag, a jar, or whatever of chocolate chips over and they fell into the dough. And of course, I mean, you can't pick a bunch of chocolate chips out of chocolate chip cookie no. dough. So, so this, is like, the, this is Nugget. the accidental. Or this is the accidental nature, yeah. right? <laughs> so Carolyn Wyman, she's a woman who wrote a book called The Great American Chocolate Chip Cookie Book. She posits that Wakefield was too much of a pro. She Wakefield had a degree in household arts, which mm. I don't know. I don't think that kind of degree exists anymore, but I bet it'd be cool. Um, Sounds fun. Yeah. Me like, you know, like liberated woman is like, Ooh, a degree in household arts. Like (laughs) that sounds awesome. Um, But so Carolyn Wyman says that uh, Wakefield was too much of a pro and too much of a perfectionist to allow her business's kitchen to run out of staples like nuts or Baker's chocolate.
1: That seems likely. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Wakefield herself later said that she knew what the chips would do and was trying to create exactly what she did, the Mm. chocolate chip cookie. She just didn't know how popular they would be. I will also, full disclosure, I 100% instacarted a roll of toll house chocolate chip cookie dough in the writing of the story because (laughs) the hankering for a warm chocolate chip cookie hit me so hard
1: i mean we just we we have to say like this woman's a goddamn genius Like i mean
0: she's a she's a goddamn visionary (laughs) (laughs)
1: like thank god what was her name wakefield like
0: Yes, Ruth Graves Wakefield. Like, thank God for Ruth Graves. Thank Wakefield. God, right? Because I like I'm, uh, you know, again to like interject my own to interrupt my own story. But I'm a little suspicious of people when they say that they don't like chocolate chip cookies. Psychopaths. I right. Absolutely like, psychopaths. There are people who just don't like chocolate, and okay, cool. But if you like chocolate and you're like, mm, uh, no, I'm gonna pass on the chocolate chip cookie, but I'll take like an Oreo. Yes.
1: Yeah, there's something wrong with you.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't want to dessert shame, but mm, I, oh, that's I one. Absolutely- absolutely do when
1: it comes to that. (laughs) Anyway, continue.
0: Okay. So chocolate chip cookies actually ended up being discovered, invented at the perfect moment in American history because they came this, they became this kind of antidote to the great depression. Oh yeah. Yeah. So what you had with the chocolate chip cookie was a single serving dessert that contained the richness and comfort that a whole bunch of people were going without. Mm -hmm. It was this little, you know three four bites of decadence and luxury
1: and it's so fucking simple like that's the genius of it
0: yeah yeah i mean mm, your basic chocolate chip cookie recipe has flour sugar some kind of fat eggs liquid chocolate chips yeah yeah and
1: then done and yeah beautiful yeah
0: Yeah, it's not like super exotic materials or whatever but god bless they come together to
1: just create i just remember like very quickly I, when I was a kid, my grandparents lived in Colorado mm-hmm. and I used to get up at four in the morning every day to go fishing with my grandpa, go out on Vaisita Lake in Southern Colorado. And every mm-hmm. morning my grandmother would make me like a little thermos of hot chocolate
0: mm-hmm. and like
1: four or five of her home baked chocolate chip cookies. Forget it. And like, I still like my grandmother has since passed away. I, she would not give that recipe. Like nobody in the family has the, the chocolate Are you chip serious? cookie recipe. She was like, this will go to the grave with me. <gasps>
2: Grandma,
1: <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> but I, uh, I still will have dreams about those chocolate chip cookies sometimes they're they're so good again
0: a warm chocolate chip cookie right out of the oven I will frequently have like you know sort of par for the course I will I like to enjoy warm chocolate chip cookies right out of the oven with a glass of milk but there is also a a sort of childhood memory and I will do every now and then of eating chocolate chip cookies with a glass of lemonade oh that I mean to me that's disgusting but that's my own (laughs) yeah Yeah. And and I know it's a weird thing. It sounds like a really weird thing to pair a glass of lemonade with chocolate chip mm-hmm. cookies, but it is because I used to go to summer camps when I was little and the uh, snack, the like midday afternoon snack I see. would be cookies and lemonade. And there's something about it that just like whew, takes me back to like yeah. making, making dip candles and Okay. Well, that's acceptable. Then. Being a kid. On March 20th, 1939, Wakefield sold, in heavy quotes, her recipe to Nestle for $1, a dollar that she never saw, and, mm-hmm, and a lifetime supply of chocolate. Nestle mm. began printing Wakefield's recipe on the wrappers of their baker's chocolate bar Yo, Nestle, pay the Wakefield family the money you owe them for yeah. the chocolate uh, and also stop stealing people's water and clean up Flint, Michigan. All in all to say, even if chocolate chip cookies weren't accidentally invented, it is hard to argue the impact that chocolate chip cookies have had on us as as a, a dessert. Yeah. yeah, as a species.
2: <laughs>
1: as you can tell, I'm a fan of chocolate chip
0: cookies. Yeah. Scotty's like also Instacart. I mean, I Instacart, I literally Instacarted one and I wanted the individual cookies because I do better with those. Like I can parse out, I can make two little cookies and that's it. The tube is a little bit harder for me to have self-control over, Mm -hmm. Uh, but I have more than half of the tube left. So I have not eaten. (laughs) I'm trying to parse them out. I'm
1: um, not judging. I'm not judging. I
0: know. <laughs> okay, our next food is potato chips. Ooh. There's a common theme in a lot of these food discovery, creation, invention stories, which is that somebody will be eating. Like there will be an original dish that somebody is eating, and they're like, "I don't like this. It's too hard. It's too soft. It's not salty enough. It's whatever. Mm-hmm. It's too big. It's blah, blah. and then the cook being like, "Okay, fine." Okay, you want it like that? So here. And potato chips is our first entry in the sort of like revenge spite uh, cooking. I love that. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so the story goes that George Crumb was the cook at Moon's Lake House. And I completely forgot to write down where that is. Okay, so on August 24th, 1853, some grumpy dude uh, (laughs) goes in to eat and he keeps sending his French fries back. He says they're too thick. They're too soggy. They're too Mm -hmm. bland. Crumb is like fine and like (laughs) spitefully takes a potato, slices it as thin as he fucking can, fries them until they're like totally crispy and throws on a whole shit ton of salt and is like, take these out to this a-hole and see if this (laughs) will shut him up and it did because the guy was like these are fantastic (laughs) and the potato chip was born nice (laughs) Um, I should note that there are British and French cookbooks again talking about Brits and French people being like (laughs) we did that first for recipes for stuff that looks a whole lot like potato chips that are fried in lard clarified butter Mm -hmm. goose drippings that were published a few decades before George Crumb made his batch but honestly like this is just a better story
1: yeah so we're going with
0: it yeah chicken tikka masala that is this is another one of our like all right we'll like give this grumpy customer this um (laughs) so chicken tikka masala is a dish of roasted chunks of chicken doused in a creamy orange colored sauce the origin of the dish can't quite be placed. There are people that are like, it's a 100% a British food. It's like a British take on curry. Mm-hmm. Others that definitely say that it's a dish that came from India and then was sort of like bastardized and reworked and Im- like improvised until it became the dish that it is today. Right. And then there's an, the other camp that says that are, <laughs> they're sure that the whole damn thing started in Glasgow, Scotland. Mm. Okay. I'm setting the tone for you guys sometime mm-hmm. in the 1970s. Ali Ahmed Aslam, he is the owner and operator of the Shish Mall, an authentic Scottish curry house. He is suffering from a stomach ulcer and is on a liquid-based diet. A grumpy customer complains one evening that the chicken dish that he's eating at the has is too dry, and he sends it back to the kitchen. Mm -hmm. So Mr. Ali is like, well, he's got this ulcer, and he's eating a bowl of tomato soup, and he's like, well, well, doctor, this chicken, I'll put in a little bit of this tomato soup, I'll sprinkle some extra spices on there, and sends it out. The customer, when he gets the dish back, is so delighted with this new dish Hmm. that he kept coming back and kept bringing more and more friends. Uh to the Sheesh Mahal so that they could experience the new dish. And chicken tikka masala was born. The story of chicken tikka... Yeah, the story of Chicken Tikka Masala's creation became so firmly entrenched in Scottish food lore that Glasgow Labour MP Mohamed Sarwar put forth a motion requesting that Parliament legally recognize Glasgow as the home of Chicken Tikka Masala. The motion did not pass, but Chicken Tikka Uh, Masala remains delectable regardless. I
1: didn't know that there was such a thing as an authentic
0: Scottish curry restaurant. Neither did I! (laughs) Wow. Our next entry is the chimichanga. A <laughs> chimichanga is a flour tortilla filled with any combination of the following meat, beans, rice, cheese, whatever the hell. Yep. That is then wrapped up, created, you know, wrapped up like a little burrito and deep fried. They're really big in Tex-Mex. Tex-Mex cuisine. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that restaurants here in New Mexico, like you can have them, but a chimichanga is not something that is on every Mexican, New Mexican restaurant's menu. No.
1: And in fact, I mean, this is its own like rabbit hole, but like the difference between New Mexican food and Tex-Mex is vast. Vast. And New Mexicans in particular tend to be very like Tex-Mex. So like if it's like associated with Tex-Mex, I can see authentic New Mexican restaurants being like fuck that we don't want anything
0: to do with. yeah i agree our story begins in tucson arizona which boldly claims itself the mexican food capital of the u.s
1: Mm, it's a bold claim
0: bold claim
1: being the word native yeah (laughs) coming from two native new mexicans here
2: (laughs) Uh, okay. okay
0: In 1922, a woman named Monica Flynn was cooking at her restaurant, El Charo in Tucson, Arizona, mm-hmm. when she accidentally dropped a full burrito into the deep fryer.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: She was about to let loose what would have no doubt been an impressive torrent of Spanish profanity, <laughs> but stopped because her young nieces and nephews were in the kitchen with her. So she was like chimichanga, And the name stuck.
1: That's amazing. (laughs) I love that.
0: An alternate story says that in 1946, Woody Johnson creates the chimichanga when he deep fries some day-old unsold burritos to sell the next day at his restaurant, Macayo's Mexican Restaurant. Tucson is so proud of the chimichanga that the city published an ad in food and wine magazine inviting tourists to visit tucson home of the chimichanga
1: i okay i do got to say real quick after Mm -hmm. kind of displaying my skepticism about tucson there for a moment i have there was some of the best i guess what you would call mexican food i've ever had was at a restaurant in tucson Uh, On my way out to LA, I stopped there and it was so fucking good. So they know how to make some good food down there. I would take a road trip down there just to try an authentic Tucson chimichanga.
2: Let's
0: do it. Let's do it. (laughs) Let's do it. And then we'll also, we'll hit one of my later stories, you know, as we make our way out West. Nashville hot chicken. Uh, Mm. Nashville hot chicken looks like it hurts. It is a piece of fried chicken that is covered either before or after breading in a cayenne pepper paste. Covered. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's it is red. Like if you think of angry fried chicken, that's what (laughs) Nashville hot chicken looks like. It is traditionally served on a slice of white bread with pickle slices. Hmm. Uh, As the name suggests, it's a Nashville local dish, and a lot of restaurants have their own special recipe. The dish is actually so popular that there's a citywide hot chicken festival and competition. And I'm certain that the competition rests heavily on who. can make the hottest oh it's got a it. hot chicken i mean
1: i've heard of nashville hot chicken but i, I never i don't even think i've ever seen a picture
0: i'll obviously post one it, it yeah. like it just it looks it looks mad um <laughs> okay so where did it come from uh sometime in the 30s or 40s a man by the name of thornton prince also known as james thornton prince also known as thornton prince the third was living his life as a womanizer After one exceptionally late night out, his girlfriend, her name has been lost to history, gets so pissed that he'd been out all night doing God knows what with God knows who. So she exacted her revenge how she could by cooking Thornton a breakfast of super spicy fried chicken that was just like, she just threw in a shit ton of of cayenne pepper. Thornton ended up actually loving the chicken. Mm -hmm. So he then took the recipe, tweaked it a bit, and went on to open the barbecue chicken shack with his brothers. The original location of the chicken shack was located near Ryman Auditorium, which is the home of the Grand Ole Opry. Mm. In its heyday, I think it has since moved, moved. Uh, by I don't know. Don't quote me on that. The Opry stars would head over to the Chicken Shack after every performance, where because they were white and Thornton, I should have said that. Nashville Hot Chicken is very big in it's a it's a very popular dish in the black community. Mm-hmm. Thornton Prince. His brothers, they were indeed Black. So, Opry stars would head over to this Black owned business where to eat this Nashville hot chicken, where they yeah. would have to pass through the Black dining room, the kitchen, and into the whites only dining uh. room that had been added after the fact
1: just to capitalize on this hot chicken madness
0: well yeah I'm sure they were like if these white people want to come in here and eat our chicken like they can which is also just so funny that they're like they can walk through the dining room walk through the kitchen Mm -hmm. and head out back to the the whites only dining room so okay so in (laughs) 1980 Thornton's niece took over the restaurant and she removed the barbecue from the name the restaurant is now known as Prince's Hot Chicken Shack from what I can tell nothing else is known of Thornton's girlfriend who originally yeah. invented the dish but i hope she eventually found someone who treated her right yeah
1: because like talk about a revenge scheme that backfires like not yeah. only does it not work then the dude goes and makes a bunch of fucking money doing it yeah yeah,
0: yeah. wherever you are whoever you were i you hope life you. treated you better Woosh shire sauce <laughs>
1: the sauce no one can
0: knows how to pronounce one thing okay one thing I love I like Worcestershire sauce was a staple in our kitchen like one Mm -hmm. of the articles I read about it talks about how a lot of people have a bottle of uh Lee and Perrins because that's sort of the the most well-known brand in their kitchen and it could be that it's a bottle that you've gone through or a bottle that you've had for six years for that one recipe that you used Lee and Perrins was used in a lot it's mm-hmm. used in a lot of my mom's recipes so i have great affection for it. i also just think it's amazing i think it's fantastic i
1: use it i use it for like cooking steaks and stuff all the time oh
0: yeah so, yeah. yeah yeah throw it in there it's great oh uh, it's so good i also again have like a personal affection for it because my mom has a very difficult time saying it she <laughs> usually just calls it lee and parents part of that is because in spanish you spanish you pronounce every letter right so when you're faced with something like Worcestershire sauce it's just gonna mess mm-hmm. you up <laughs> like yeah you're just gonna
1: have a hard time with it i wonder what people in massachusetts call it because you know massachusetts has the city of worcester which is spelled worcester shire whatever
0: yeah uh yeah and this is this is like the so it's w-o-r-c-e-s-t-e-r shire Mm -hmm. and that minus the shire the way from everything i read the way you're supposed to pronounce that is worcester Worcestershire sauce.
1: Worcestershire sauce, yeah. Yeah,
0: who knows. Okay, so Worcestershire sauce is a dark fermented liquid condiment that originated in the city of Worcester and Worcestershire England in the early 1800s. Mm. It brings a lot to the table flavor-wise, and it is mm-hmm. a great source of umami. Umami is the savory, fifth flavor so you've got salty Mm. sweet sour bitter and umami umami is a japanese word and and it means
2: deliciousness
0: (laughs) i love that so much okay hard fact everything is better with worcestershire sauce in it Mm -hmm. hands down i just
1: i've been making this like fajita marinated chicken
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, because I'm like I'm doing my keto diet thing Mm -hmm. and uh, normally I use like the clods fajita stuff and throw some red wine in there throw Mm -hmm. some soy sauce fajita seasoning I decided on the last batch I'm like I'm gonna add a little bit of Worcestershire sauce just to see what it does I mean life-changing
0: yeah yeah it'll change your life if you're not currently using it and you don't have any dietary restrictions as to why you can't use it throw it in everything put
1: it in ice cream
0: Sure. Uh, Okay. (laughs) So how did we get blessed with the miracle sauce of Worcestershire sauce? Fermented sauces have been around forever. They were a staple of Greco-Roman cuisine, and first century encyclopedist Pliny the Elder wrote about a fermented fish sauce called Mm. garum. Leon Perrins, the name in Worcestershire sauce, says that Lord Sandy's returned... i don't know who lord sandys is (laughs) um but they were just like lord sandys
1: (laughs) some lord some british lord
0: Returned home from his raging days as a colonizer in India, and he mm. was real sad about missing his favorite Indian sauce. So Lord Sandy's hollered at Lee and Parens, who were then a couple of plucky pharmacists, and mm. was like, Hey, can you recreate the sauce? Lee and Perrins were like, Yeah, we'll we'll give it a shot. So they get to work on recreating this fermented fish and vegetable sauce, mm-hmm. but it smells so bad that they're <laughs> like, This can't be right. And they stick not edible. <laughs> this is not edible. We've made a terrible mistake. And they stick the barrels of it because it's not like they made a little batch of it and we're like let's see how it goes. They were like, here are the barrels of this fermented fish and vegetable sauce and they stick that in the cellar where it gets forgotten about for two years. Mm. One day, Lee and parents are doing like a big spring cleaning mission or something and they find the barrels of this fermented fish and vegetable sauce. And they're like, oh god, but they open them up and they're like, ooh, this ooh. smells good. And then they taste it and they're like, oh Oh, this is awesome. Nice. (laughs) <laughs> so they're like, okay, we found it. We found, we found like a uh, liquid food gold. Lee and Perrin's went to work spreading the gospel of their new sauce and the thing like took off. Mm. To this day, bottles of Lee and Perrin's are still wrapped in paper as they originally were to protect the bottles from breaking during sea voyages.
1: Ah, uh, interesting. That's
0: why they're wrapped I've in paper. I've always
1: wondered why they're wrapped in paper.
0: Okay. Yep. That's cool. Yep. Although the advertising no longer... <laughs> This is like they're still wrapped in paper, although the advertising no longer claims to make your hair grow beautifully.
1: Yeah, I could see how like the
0: FDA was like, "Hey, you gotta, you gotta take that." You can't do well, and it it was probably (laughs) I don't who who the hell knows. Uh, The original recipe calls for barley malt vinegar, spirit vinegar, molasses, sugar, salt, anchovies, tamarind extract, onions, garlic, and spices and flavorings, Mm -hmm. Uh, and may also include lemons, soy sauce, pickles, and peppers. In news that should surprise no one, Leon Perrin's in the U.S. has. three times more sugar than the British version. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. yeah. The serving size of American Lean parents is also significantly smaller. I think in, in England, a serving is a tablespoon and here it's a teaspoon.
1: Mm, interesting. And it still
0: has more. Yeah.
1: I do remember when I was in Scotland, I, you know, I didn't think much about it at the time, but it seemed like everything came with like, like a side of Worcester sauce or something, you know? So yep. it's
0: clearly big over there. Yep. Nachos. <laughs> delicious crunchy cheesy goodness god bless the fucking nacho Uh, and god bless ignacio nacho anaya who created the dish in 1940 Mm. the original dish was beautiful in its simplicity fried corn tortilla chips covered with melted cheese and sliced jalapeno peppers in piedras negras Coahuila, which is right across the U.S.-Mexico border from Eagle Pass, Texas. Ignacio Anaya was working at the Victory Club as the maitre d' when a group of military wives from the base in Eagle Pass enter the restaurant. Uh, The woman had crossed the Rio Grande to shop and were in need of a snack and some drinks. Problem was, as the story goes, there were no chefs in the restaurant at the time, and the woman had asked for something a little different. Mm. Because, of course, they did. Uh, (laughs) Ignacio (laughs) Ignacio went into the kitchen, took some totopos, which are fried corn tortilla chips, Mm -hmm. topped them with Colby cheese and Mm -hmm. slices of jalapenos and threw them in the oven and loved the snack obviously because nachos are perfect i mean um, like chocolate
1: chip cookies like if you don't perfect. like nachos you're a psychopath
0: yeah psycho and ordered seconds stories vary about whether ignacio himself named the snack after his nickname mm-hmm. uh nacho is diminutive of ignacio mm-hmm. or if the ladies did but from that point on they were known as nachos special which of course got shortened to simply nachos oh. fun fact Colby cheese is obviously an American cheese, and it was referred to as queso relief because it was one of the ingredients provided by the US government. Folks mm. who got the cheese on the US side of the border would share, sell, or barter with relatives on the Mexican side. This, again, has like a personal connection with me because my mom waxes poetic about a canned cheese that she always called queso. CARE Mm -hmm. that she would get in Bolivia. CARE is how Spanish speakers would pronounce a word that is spelled C-A-R-E. It's Ah. CARE cheese. It was cheese that came in the CARE packages. Ah. Yeah. CARE is an acronym for the Cooperative for Assistance and Relief Mm -hmm. Everywhere. Yeah. In a New York Times article titled The Original Nachos Were Crunchy, Cheesy, and Truly Mexican, Pati Jinich writes, nachos were the epitome of comida fronteriza, food from the borderlands. It's a place where food seems to be caught in a constantly evolving in between, not from here, not from there, strongly rooted, but hard to pin down. Mm. Coca-Cola. <laughs> <laughs> so Coke wasn't an accident, but it does have an interesting origin story. John Pemberton was a wounded Confederate colonel. and He was addicted to morphine. He mm. got addicted to morphine after receiving a deep saber wound to the chest in a Civil War battle. Mm. The field docs basically hauled him off the field and were like, this motherfucker is going to die. Just load him up with morphine. Yeah. But he didn't die. And instead he got addicted to morphine. Right. So he wanted to find some kind of substitute for the highly addictive drug. And in 1885, he registered a patent for Pemberton's French Wine Coca Nerve Tonic. Uh, it was an alcoholic drink made with coca, cocaine, yeah. and cola. That this is cola with a K. It's a it's the cola nut, which mm-hmm. is an African fruit high in caffeine. Uh sidebar a year before a Spanish drink called Cola Coca showed up oh. at a contest in Philly. Coca-Cola bought the rights to Cola Coca in 1953. Uh. In 1886, Atlanta passes prohibition and Pemberton is like, fuck. So (laughs) he makes Coca-Cola, a non-alcoholic version of his nerve tonic. It's marketed as a temperance drink. At the time, people believed that carbonated water was healthy. It's not that carbonated water isn't healthy, but they thought it had like medicinal properties. Um, So Pemberton marketed the thick syrup, which was to be mixed with carbonated water at soda fountains as a patent medicine. This is a whole other rabbit hole. Uh, So patent medicine is a commercial product advertised as over-the-counter medicine, usually characterized as pseudoscience.
1: Mm -hmm. It's kind of like snake oil. Yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. 100%. Again, medical quackery. So Pemberton claimed his drink cured morphine addiction, indigestion, nerve disorders, headaches, impotence, all of it. Mm -hmm. Coke was sold for five cents a glass, a price that would remain static until 1959. Oh, wow. Yeah. Pemberton finally succumbed to the addiction. He invented Coke to cure in 1888. And due to a whole bunch of like contracts and shares and investments and stuff that I don't really know a lot about, the brand ended up in the hands of a man named Asa Candler, who changed the world with a soft drink. Mm -hmm. Candler invented the coupon to get people to drink Coca-Cola. Oh. The official Coca-Cola logo comes from that first coupon for a free sample.
2: Interesting.
0: When, mm-hmm, when a federal tax on medicines went through in 1898, Coca-Cola stopped marketing the drink as a cure-all and started marketing it as a refreshing beverage you could drink recreationally and make positive memories while doing so. This is how Coca-Cola got tied to Christmas. Oh. Mm-hmm. It's a myth that Coke invented santa claus he existed prior to this but was usually seen as a tall lean man in red green or brown coca-cola turned him into the jolly fat man in the red suit that we all know to boost sales of the cold drink during the winter months also
1: because if you drink a bunch of coke it's going to make you fat so it's like (laughs)
0: no you'll just be like santa claus i don't know if they made that correlation but maybe (laughs) Um, so in doing that, they ended up creating a character that billions of children would associate with magic, family, presence, and right. then pass that down to their kids and their kids and their kids. Coke also revolutionized outdoor advertising by basically plastering every, every last fucking thing with its logo. Mm-hmm. Today, the Coca-Cola logo is the third most powerful brand in the world, coming in only behind Apple and Google. And it all wow. started with a morphing-addicted Confederate colonel.
1: Uh, even ahead of, like, McDonald's. Like, yep. Uh, yeah, okay. Yep. Interesting.
0: Mm-hmm. Dulce de leche. Mm. Dulce de leche is a sweet, thick spread made from slowly heating sweetened milk until it caramelizes. The name translates to, sort of literally translates to sweet from milk, and it just doesn't do the Spanish name justice. Sorry, yeah. guys. Um it's <laughs> yeah, I gorgeous... don't want to
1: eat sweet from milk. I yeah. super want to eat dulce de leche
0: yes i saw it once in a translated from an in an argentinian menu the english version of the menu said milk jelly and i was like (laughs) what the fuck is milk jelly and when they brought us the spanish menu we were like oh Oh. i mean i guess but like yeah that's a bad translation that's
2: bad branding
0: there's just no way you just need to know that it's dulce de leche and don't try to translate it right okay so its origins are not completely known and ev- and literally everybody wants to lay claim to this delicious concoction. There mm-hmm. are stories about like fucking Napoleon's cook or that it was a confection of Indonesian origin that made it all the way to the Philippines where it was quote discovered by the Spanish mm-hmm. blah 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 blah. My favorite theory is that it was discovered in Argentina in the 19th century. The story goes that General Juan Manuel de Rosas was in a peace meeting with a political enemy Juan Lavalle. While the two tried to come to some type of resolution, a maid was warming milk and sugar. Their stories vary. Some say it was for tea. Others say that she was making some other dessert. Mm -hmm. Um, But she's warming milk and sugar when she gets called away. And she completely forgets about the pot of sweetened milk that's like cooking. When she returns, the mixture had caramelized into a thick sweet, dark sauce. There is an idea, I think some people who are unfamiliar think that dulce de leche is just caramel in Spanish. It's not, it is so much better. <laughs> uh, I love dulce de leche. Again, it's a. I have a very deep like familial history uh, because we make cookies with it and all sorts of stuff and I love it. I've also read stories that say that the discovery of the delicious confection aided in those peace talks but that could just be legend. <laughs>
1: i mean i wouldn't be surprised
0: yeah i mean That's i know it dulce- put you in a good mood yeah i ate dulce de leche as a kid the way other kids eat peanut butter like mm-hmm. with a spoon spread on crackers we didn't make sandwiches out of it or anything but like dulce de leche was our spread yeah oh god would love it. The French dip sandwich. Also sometimes known as the hot beef, but we're not going to call it that because it sounds dirty. (laughs) Uh, A French dip sandwich is thinly sliced roast beef on a French roll or baguette. It is usually served plain, meaning that it's just the meat on the bread. Although Mm -hmm. some places will throw on onions or Swiss cheese or some stuff. And it is accompanied, the delivery method varies, but it is accompanied by beef broth from the cooking process. Right. Two American restaurants lay claim to the French dip. They're both in LA and they are Coles Pacific Electric Buffet and Philippe the Original. Mm. Uh, the two have slightly different presentations. Cole serves the sandwich with the side of au jus while Philippe's dips the roll into the juice before the sandwich is assembled. Both uh-huh. restaurants Offer a double dipped version where both halves of the sandwich are dipped before serving, and both also have their own brands of spicy mustard to complement the sandwich. Mm. So, this Yum. is why
1: you texted me that. Yes. Exactly. And I
0: was like, I want to go to Philippe's and eat a French yeah. dip. Yes, 100%. Philippe's gives a couple of origin stories. The first is that a cook or server dropped a sandwich into a pan of meat drippings while trying to serve it to a customer. A story goes that it was a cop or a fireman. The mm-hmm. customer was like, ah, it's fine. I'll take it. And ended up liking the sandwich so much that he was like, hey, let's, let's keep doing this. Yeah. The second is that a customer didn't want the meat drippings to go to waste and was like, dip my Sammy in those hot beef juices. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) um
1: (laughs) also super porny but okay
0: (laughs) the third is another one of our revenge discoveries that a cook drops that okay so the cook is is making the roast beef sandwich and a customer is like the bread is too stale and so the cook is like fine and dipped it into the meat drippings and was like here there's your soggy sandwich and I was like this is great. Coles says that chef Jack Garlinghouse dipped the bread from their roast beef sandwich into the juice for a customer who was complaining of sore gums. Ah uh. He probably had syphilis or something. Um, (laughs) It's unlikely that the exact origin will ever be known due to lack of information and observable evidence. What is known is that French dips are delicious. I am a fan. Yeah. Yeah. Eggs Benedict. (laughs) <laughs> um, a brunch staple of toasted split English muffins topped with ham, a poached egg and hollandaise sauce Delmonico's who made, I talked about Delmonico's briefly in another episode, but I don't remember which one. It yeah. Was. I remember
1: you mentioning it. I don't remember. Mm-hmm.
0: Delmonico's in Manhattan lays claim to the recipe saying that they invented in the dish in 1860, but like that, like, they're just like, we made it. There's no story to go along with it or anything. Hey they're just like, we did it.
1: Hey guys, we did it. You're welcome.
0: Yes. So we've got a couple of theories here. Well, there's Delmonico's and then there's these guys. The other story is that Wall Street stockbroker Lemuel Benedict says he invented the dish when he wandered into the Waldorf Hotel hungover as and was like, oh, I need like a dish to soak up this alcohol. So he ordered buttered toast, poached eggs, crisp bacon, and a hooker of hollandaise sauce. Mm-hmm. That is how like a hooker of hollandaise sauce, <laughs> which I love. Oscar Chierke, who was the hotel's maitre d' was like, yo, that looks delicious. And he put it on the breakfast and lunch menu, switching an English muffin for the toast and ham for the bacon. Mm. In 1967, Edward P. Montgomery wrote to the New York Times and was like, what's up my uncle, Commodore Elias Cornelius Benedict. (laughs) Uh. (laughs) Actually invented eggs Benedict. The Commodore's recipe, and like sent along a recipe, the Commodore's recipe varies greatly from traditional eggs Benedict, Mm. mostly in the fact that he calls for a, quote, hot hard cooked egg and ham to be mixed into the hollandaise sauce. Oh. I denounce the Commodore's recipe. Yeah, that doesn't uh, sound right. It doesn't sound good at all. There are tons of variations of eggs Benedict. You've got eggs Blackstone, which adds streaky bacon and tomato slice slices. Eggs Blanchard, which uses a bechamel sauce instead of the hollandaise. Eggs Florentine adds spinach. Eggs Chesapeake replaces the ham with a Maryland blue crab cake.
2: Mm-hmm. Eggs
0: Omar, also known as Steak Benedict, uses a small steak instead of ham. Scotty and I actually had a life changing experience eating (laughs) eggs benedict variations at a restaurant called Syrup in Denver. Shout out to these guys. I went and looked at the menu too and was like, oh my God, just drooling.
1: Still some of the best food I've ever had in my
0: life. Yeah. Scotty had the Maryland Benedict while I went with the cherry creaker, which is an eggs benedict that switches out the ham for their award winning corned beef cash and honestly scotty and i have never been the same since no
1: i mean i like we need to we need to make a trip up to denver as soon as pandemic is over yeah let's we got some people go we can go restaurant. visit
0: let's go do it yeah yes okay the last and final dish on our interesting food origin stories journey kaiser schmarn <laughs> <laughs> uh, this translates like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this translates to emperor's mess mm. it is a light Caramelized pancake made from sweet batter, baked in butter, sprinkled with rum-soaked raisins. Mm. While cooking, the pancake is split with two forks into bite-sized pieces, then sprinkled with powdered sugar and served hot with apple or plum sauce or fruit compotes. Mm. It is eaten as a dessert. Legend has it that our friends from episode two, Austrian Emperor Franz Joseph and his wife <laughs> Sissy are the reason that the dish exists. Oh, wow. Yep. Cool. As we know, Sissy was looking for a light dessert to maintain her trim waistline. Yep. The royal chef came up with this scrambled pancake. Uh, but when he served it to her, Sissy was like, this is too rich. I don't like it. And she pushed her, her plate away. Franz Joseph, who was probably already way over sissy's weird eating habits, (laughs) grabbed the plate saying, now let me see what schmarin mess our chef has cooked up. He liked the dish so much that Mm. he ate sissy's portion and his (laughs) own. And the new dessert was added to the Royal dessert rotations. Sissy Mm. probably went off to go drink a vial of veal juice or whatever the fuck. Um, I
1: forgot (laughs) forgot about the veal juice. Okay, anyway. Yep.
0: Another origin story for this dessert says that while traveling through the Alps, Franz, Joseph, and Sissy stopped by a farmer's house for lunch, which is so rude for like an emperor to be like, can you feed us? And this farmer's like, I don't,
1: Yeah, like what would you do if like Joe Biden showed up right now? I
0: mean, honestly, if Joe Biden showed up at my house right now, I'd be like fucking cool. i will whip up something for you, Joe. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Uh, I got some leftover spaghetti. Uh, I've got half a tube of (laughs) Toll House cookie dough. He seems like the type of guy that would just be like, I'll take
1: take that tube at Toll House and he'd be good. (laughs)
0: And just eat it whole. Oh my God. Okay. So they stop at this farmer's house to eat. And the farmer was so nervous about having to cook for the emperor and empress who literally just stopped and were like, feed us. Uh, that he threw his fanciest ingre- ingredients into a pan to make a fancy pancake and then proceeded to scramble the pancake because his hands were shaking so badly. Uh, he then covered the mess with plum jam to disguise the sort of <laughs> lackluster presentation. And old Franz Joseph was like, This is fantastic.
1: And and then he's like, Do you have any veal juice?
0: You have any veal juice? I'm going to go veal- outside and take a deep breath there for lunch. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) Third story says, third story is about Sissy being a bad cook who couldn't properly turn a a pancake Mm. in the pan. So she sort of played to her strengths and shred it and then served it to the Kaiser, her husband, Franz Joseph, with jam. This is the sweetest version of the story that she was like i can't do this i can't like make you a regular pancake so i'm gonna like you know just try to do what i can with it but knowing what we do know about sissy and her relationship not only with Franz joseph but also with food as well it's probably the most unlikely yeah
1: i was gonna say
0: like yeah it doesn't seem
1: like doesn't seem yeah. like the sissy we know
0: yeah the sissy that we all know and love with her <laughs> veal juice and her corsets and her yeah adult tigers and whatever the hell um no it was a young tiger (laughs) uh okay so that's it that's some fun food origin stories and i hope that that makes you consider like where your favorite dishes come from and uh the story behind them
1: i will say you successfully made me hungry yeah you also made me like think about like could i just drive to denver now and have that (laughs) fucking Marilyn benedict (laughs) because holy shit that was good
0: it was so good yeah it was so good
1: we're gonna have have to make that happen well road trip to tucson have some chimichangas Mm -hmm. head on up to uh la hit philippe circle back around go up to denver have some, mm-hmm. have some eggs benedict
0: yeah it's gonna be scotty and Millie's great american food tour southwest <laughs> yeah. version yeah <laughs> <laughs> well yeah. i hope that made you guys hungry and curious that's always well hunger's hungry is not always the point curious actually always is the point uh of this podcast and if you have any cool food origin stories send them to us oh yeah specifically like if you
1: have any cool revenge food origin stories because like that was my favorite just the idea of food (laughs) revenge
0: i know i just love the fact that somebody's like okay (laughs) fine all right
1: fine here's some fucking shit dipped in beef juice or whatever (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and like, oh, that is
0: well that's and that's always what i love is that it's like oh okay you want this well then there you go there you can have it and then the person's always like delicious <laughs> and then like they're like stuck making that thing forever yeah but also <sighs> probably
1: making like a ton of fucking money doing it. hopefully mm-hmm. hopefully sounds yep. like our genius uh with the chocolate chip cookies maybe <sighs> didn't make as much if she got ripped off by Nestle.
0: She was like, I think she was happy running her in, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. Which stood for a very long time and burned down. I don't know. It could have been the 60s. It could have been, two years ago. I don't know, but there's a a sign for the toll house in, um, yeah. And that's one of those things that like, I, you know, I never thought it never occurred to me to be like, why are they called toll house cookies?
1: Yeah. It's like, you know, the, or that's fascinating in and of itself. Just the origin of brand names could be really Mm -hmm. interesting.
0: Yeah. And that was like, there was Coca-Cola was one that like, I could have, like, you could probably do an entire episode on Coca-Cola because it really did like it like Coca Cola changed the world, whether you think it's for better or for worse.
2: Um, but
0: <laughs> but it ch- it changed the world. Like yeah. advertising was never the same after yeah. after Coca Cola.
1: Well, cool everybody. Well, that was another episode of the weirdest thing. hey Heyo. So uh yeah uh always, as always be sure to rate review subscribe all the good things. Yep. Reach out to us on Instagram, Twitter, email. Although I haven't checked the email in quite a while okay so <laughs> don't see. email us i guess yeah.
0: just message us on instagram Instagram's facebook probably or twitter the best
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, um and yeah. we've
0: had some friends who've been giving us like episode ideas a couple of them are massive and they're going to take Scotty yeah. and i a little while to figure out how to do there's uh, one in
1: particular that's like huge and also has to be approached in a very particular way yeah so that'll that'll probably be a little while but it is yeah. coming we've talked about it
0: so yep it's also officially it's february 1st uh, as we are recording this so happy black history month oh yes uh to everybody we'll probably get some cool stories yeah having to definitely. do with that during this month um and other than that yeah like scotty said subscribe rate review tell your friends and uh stay weird yeah thanks for listening bye bye Listen to friends, we'll blow your mind With the finest nonsense we could find Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing